five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a, um, what's today? <laughs> Friday, Erev Shabbos. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, and today we continue with our nine days format here at JM in the AMRA Barrel Wine and the topic of the land of Israel coming up in just a moment. Uh, today is uh, the day of our weekly update. Every single Friday, we get a chance to explore the news of the week. That'll be coming up at 7.40. Is there really a ceasefire or not? We'll explore that and many other questions coming up 7.40 Eastern Time this morning right here at JM in the AM. Meanwhile, Rabbi Beryl Wine has a Jewish Values uh, series that we've been concentrating on this week, and this segment is entitled The Land of Israel. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. Thank you for joining us on this Erev Shabbos Chazon at JM in the AM. Tonight's uh, topic uh, deals with Eretz Israel as a value. Now, and I'm talking as a uh, political statement or as an idea of uh, Jewish nationalism, but as a religious value, because this entire series deals with values. And the value of Eretz Israel as uh, an idea uh, is one of the most supreme values in all of Torah and all of the Jewish people. I read an article uh, before Yom Yushalayim written by the chief rabbi of Haifa, Rav Shor Yashuv Cohen, uh, who uh, the thrust of the article uh, was a remembrance of his experiences in Yerushalayim. He was captured in the 1948 war. He spent nine months in the Jordanian prison camp, lost part of his leg. Uh, and he writes about his experiences uh, regarding Yerushalayim over the past 57 years. But one of the things that he pointed out is, uh, and he said it very clearly, he said that Medinat Yisrael... The state of Israel is meant to be a conduit, is meant to be a means to achieve Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. And in other words, that the state and our nationalism and everything that we have accomplished, that's not the end, that's only the means. And the means, uh, he quotes naturally from his father, the Nazir, and uh, from Rav Kook, uh, that the physical rebuilding of the Jewish people is a necessary prerequisite for the spiritual rebuilding of the Jewish people. But it is not the end. The end is that spiritual rebuilding. And as he calls it, it's the rebuilding of Eretz Israel and not just of Medina Israel. So we speak about Eretz Israel here as a value, as one of the ideas... Uh, that has been constant throughout Jewish history. And it's been constant. It's interesting whether the Jewish people were here in the land of Israel or whether they were in the diaspora, in the exile. Uh, because uh, we see in the Nevi'im, uh, the Nevi'im always speak about how does Eretz Israel react uh, to the behavior of the people who live there. 
as though Eretz Yisrael is a living thing. It's not a passive piece of land, but it's a living organism. And this living organism reacts to what happens on it, around it, through it, and that that's the value, uh, that's the idea of what Eretz Yisrael represents. Now, the Jewish people spent most of their history outside the land of Israel. Uh, we're a people that are uh, 33, over 3,300 years old from Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and most of the time we have not been here. And whenever we have been here, uh, it has not been sweetness and light. There were periods, good periods, the period of David HaMelech, the period of Shlomo HaMelech, 80 years. Then it started to fall apart. Uh, in the time of uh, the second temple, the period of the Hashmanoim, so the first hundred years uh, was a good time, and then it fell apart. And it's been a difficult, difficult situation always regarding living in the land of Israel. And the reason for that is because we are trying to translate a spiritual value into an everyday life, into a state that has to function, into all of the problems of everyday living. It's much easier to deal with it as an imaginary thing, because then you never have any disappointments, and you don't have to worry about it, and you don't have to collect taxes, and you don't have the, the whole problem. But how do we make it work practically uh, that is a major challenge, and that challenge has faced the Jewish people every time they've been here in the land of Israel. So we find that uh, during the time of Yoshua and the Shoftim, so during the time of Yoshua, the Jewish people still were afraid of Yoshua because they still were afraid of Moshe. Moshe had such a lasting influence upon them that as long as Yoshua was here, they still thought that Moshe was here. But when Yoshua died, so then Vayibi Shvota Shoftim, we read now in the Megillah of Ruth. Shvota uh, Shoftim Rashi says the judges were judged. The Jewish people said, in effect, Miata, who are you to tell me to do anything? Everybody did whatever they wanted to. It was the ultimate pluralistic society. Do whatever you want. So then it's chaos falls apart. So then God has to remind them that they're Jews, right? So he sends the Plishtim, he sends the Amalekim, he sends the Kananim. All sorts of problems. And it takes time until David HaMelech comes on the scene uh, that the situation somehow becomes ameliorated. Now it becomes livable. And uh, during the last years of David, the last 20 years of David, and the first 25, 30 years of Shlomo HaMelech, so then it is finally what Eretz Yisrael is supposed to be. And they build the temple, and everything is wonderful. But people, especially the Jewish people, cannot stand prosperity. They cannot stand that everything should be wonderful, so they have to make it not so wonderful. And Shlomo wanders away, and then there's a rebellion, and Yeruvim ben Nevot, and then they split into two kingdoms, and then they become idolaters and pagans, and that's the story.
So because of that, Eretz Yisrael is the most sensitive topic to discuss. And I hesitated to put it down on the sheet as one of the values to discuss, because I'm well aware that whatever one says uh, can unfortunately be subject to misinterpretation, and also because it's so sensitive, because we're living here and we're part of it, and therefore we feel it perhaps differently than in the theory of Eretz Yisrael. The Gemara says, Gimel Matonos Nosan HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yisrael. God gave us three gifts. Below Nosan Onelobi Yisurim. And all three come with great pain. The three gifts are Torah. If you want to be a Talmud Chacham, if you want to study Torah, then it's sacrifice, it's Yisurim, it's uh, giving up hours and time. If you really want to be a great Talmud Chacham, so then it requires an enormous amount of concentration, willpower. It's Yisurim. It's not easy. Anyone who has ever opened the Daf Gemara and looked at it, is the page itself is sufficient to dissuade you from going further. That three different fonts on the page, it's, uh, it's written in a language that... Uh, very difficult for us. We don't speak Aramaic anymore. And then you have Rashi on one side and Tosas on the other side, and then you have uh, the Rosh in the back, and nobody agrees on anything with it. It's Biyasurim. If you want to accomplish something, then you have to pay for it. The second thing the Gemara says is Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael comes Biyasurim. It's a matona. So look at the language of the Talmud. The language of the Talmud is that it's a gift. Meaning we're not entitled. The language of Matona is always that you're not entitled. It's a gift. There are certain things in life that we think we're entitled to. But the Talmud, when it says Matona, so you're not entitled to be a Talmud Chochem, you have to earn it. You're not entitled there to Israel, you have to earn it. How do you earn it? But you're right? And we can all testify what that means. The Jewish people for over the past hundred years here in Eretz Yisrael, every day is Yisurim. Every day is problems. Every day is blood. Every day is all of the difficulties that we're so well aware of. And the greatest Yisurim is that you don't see any way out of it. That's, you know, as long as you see a way out of it, then people... Uh, People uh, almost are happy to absorb the Yusurim. But Yusurim on end, with no way out, so that already is a different level of pain. And the third gift that Gemara says is Olam eternity, immortality. So you only gain that also through sacrifice. You only gain that also through willing to undergo sacrifice and pain. So because of that, we have this great concept that Eretz Yisrael has to be earned. Now you have another concept that God promised it to us. He told us from the beginning, He told Avram Avinu, I'm giving you this land, it's going to be yours. He told it to Yitzchak, He told it to Yaakov. He's told it to us from the beginning of time. This is your land. I'm giving it to you. The only thing is that when it comes uh, to the bottom line, uh, it's not our land. 
Avraham Avinu wants uh, to bury his wife Sarah, so he has to buy the Mar Samachpela from the Bnei Ches, from Ephron, for, for an enormous amount of money. The Rashi there quotes the Medrash that says Avram, the, the greatness of Avram was that he didn't say to God, but you promised me, you said it's my land. What do you mean i got to pay him 400 shekel over La Socher, the best mint coins? You promised it to me. And Yitzchak digs wells all over the country, and all the wells the Philistines uh, take over, they stop them up, they throw them out. And Yitzhak does not say, but you promised me that the land is mine. And Yaakov Avinu, when he comes back from Lovon, so he has to buy the land by Shechem. And he doesn't say again, you know, God, you promised me. You told me it would be mine. So that's part of the definition of Yisurin. Yisurin is when you have to buy and sacrifice for what is yours. What belongs to you already. You have to start all over again. Which is in essence what happened to the Jewish people over the last hundred years. Whether it be through uh, the Karen Kayemet or through private funds or whatever, or purchase, you, you have to buy it all over again. Because of the fact that that's Eretz Yisrael and Niknis be Yisurin. So we have to be prepared for that. We have to realize that on one hand it's ours, it was promised to us by God, and God's promises are valid. God's contract is never defaulted. And on the other hand, uh, we have to earn it, we have to buy it, we have to fight for it, we have to bleed for it, it's not ours. And that balance, uh, that contradiction almost, uh, lies at the heart of the Yisurian of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Talmud has very, the Talmud is very, very pro Eretz Yisrael. Let's put it that way. And the Talmud uh, has almost a hidden anger, and this is the Babylonian Talmud, let alone the Yerushalmi, the uh, Talmud that was written in Eretz Yisrael. The Talmud has almost a hidden anger at people that don't come to Eretz Yisrael when they have an opportunity to do so. When the Jewish world had an opportunity to do so. But the Gemara says, for instance, by Ezra, that at the time of Ezra, most of the Jews stayed in Bovel. They didn't come back. And the Talmud says, Ilu olu if they would have come up in waves, it would have, if they would have come home, then the second temple would have had all of the spiritual glory and miracles that the first temple had. But because the Jews didn't want it, so God said, okay, so you don't want it, I, I don't want it either. It didn't come back. And throughout the history of the second temple, there were tremendous uh, Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean basin, in Rome, in Greece, in Bovel, in uh, uh, in Egypt, in Alexandria, the rabbis always held that against them. And therefore the rabbis said, for instance, Hoshivani Hashem, the Lord has made me dwell in darkness, Zu Talmudo Shalbovel, that's the Babylonian Talmud. 
the Babylonian Talmud, which the Gemara speaks about itself, is darkness because it was composed in Bovel. And uh, Bovel uh, had a very, very high spiritual state, great Talmidic Chachomim, great Yeshivas, a great Jewish community. So let me just quote to you a few Gemaras. Because the Gemara says that the land itself has a holiness to it. The land itself has a holiness to it. It's called Eretz HaKodesh, the Holy Land. So you don't hear it so much amongst Jews, but in the non-Jewish world they still call it the Holy Land. Eretz HaKodesh, the land itself has holiness, independent of who is there, and independent of how people behave there. The land itself is holy. So the Gemara says, an interesting Gemara, Rabbi Brokio, Rabbi Lezer ben Pedos, Hoyumatayli in Derech Shart Veria. Two of the Talmidim of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan had the great yeshiva in Tveria in the third century. So two of his Talmidim, Rabbi Brokio and Rabbi Lezer ben Pedos, uh, they were uh, taking a walk by the Yam Kinneret, by uh, the gate to Tveria. Now, in the ancient world, in the time of the Talmud, Tveria, as today, was a great burial ground. Had large Jewish cemeteries. The uh, great hill uh, on which the tomb of Rebmeir Balanes perches on top, that whole hill is a cemetery. It has thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of graves in it. Because... The cemeteries at the time of the Talmud were caves that were dug into the side of the mountain and that uh, because of the shortage of land uh, they uh, let the body decompose for a year and then they collected the bones and put them in an ossuary in a ceramic jar and that jar they put in in the cave and then they had room to bury again. It was a uh, different system than we are accustomed to. In any event, they are at the gates of Tveria. And they see they're bringing bodies from Chutzlaretz, right, to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. So here we have two different opinions. And the two opinions are very sharply stated. And you can hear them both today as well. They resonate in our world. Omar lo rabrokio mahoilu elu. Who needs them? What value are they coming now to get buried here? When they were alive, they didn't come. They weren't interested to live in Eretz Israel. And now they come. When he has corpses, I say that this posik refers to them. That's My country, my land, the land of Israel, you treated it abominably. That was while you were alive. You didn't come. And now you have come and you have defiled my country because a mace brings with it, tumor brings with it defilement the misaskin so he's not very happy 
You didn't come, he said, who needs you now? Omar lo Rabbi Elezer. So Rabbi Elezer ben Pedos said to him, no, 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 you're wrong. Lohi. It's not correct. Kivan shehein nigborim beretz Yisrael. Since they will be buried in the land of Israel, v'niten lahem gush ofor shel Eretz Yisrael, and they will have the dust, the dirt of Eretz Yisrael will cover their bodies. Mechaperes, it brings forgiveness to them. It says v'chiper admoso amo. Moshe Rabbeinu said. The land of Israel is a kapora for the people. And therefore, uh, if uh, they come even to be buried, so then the holiness of the land is such that that fact that they're buried here is alone sufficient to bring forgiveness for all their sins. Now, uh, we realize... uh, that throughout the ages, the Jews desired to be buried in Eretz Israel. And they came, their bodies were brought from far distant countries in order to be able to be buried in Eretz Israel. And one of the few uh, uh, permissible uh, times when a body can be exhumed and reburied is when the body is taken from outside Eretz Israel to be reburied in the land of Israel. That's because the land itself is holy. And therefore, the holy soil of the land brings a kapora for the person, even if the person did not come during his or her lifetime. And uh, because of that, there was a custom, there still is the custom throughout the Jewish world, that even the Jew that passes away in the exile and is buried outside of Eretz soil. But uh, in the grave, uh, earth from Eretz Yisrael is always placed there. Because the earth of Eretz Yisrael is v'chiper admoso amo. And that's what he said, gush ofor Eretz Yisrael. A piece of the dust of the dirt of Eretz Yisrael is sufficient to bring a kapor for a person. So we see that one of the values of Eretz Yisrael is that it is holy. And the rule in Jewish law is If you are attached to purity, to holiness, then you become somewhat holy. It's, a, uh, it's an osmosis effect. It seeps into you, whether you want it or not. And therefore, Eretz Yisrael has that value that for the Jewish people it brings holiness to us. And it's one of the mitzvahs, there are two mitzvahs, the, the Bali Musa said, there are two mitzvahs that a Jew can, the, the word in Lithuania was that he can walk in with his boots. The one is in the sukkah, right? You go into the sukkah, so you have the mitzvah. And one is Eretz Yisrael. You come to Eretz Yisrael, you walk in, you're here, that's the mitzvah. So that's the only, those are the only mitzvahs that, so to speak, you know, you can do with your boots on. You just walk in. You don't doesn't require uh, any great thought on your part as much as it requires just your presence in a certain place. Second idea regarding Eretz Israel 
I want to walk in front of God in the land of the living. So the Gemara says, Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael is the land of the living. And the Gemara says that Tchiyas HaMesim begins in Eretz Yisrael. We have that concept that's called Gilgul Mechilos, that uh, when the dead are resurrected, so there will be tunnels that will exist uh, that will uh, be able that the Jews who are buried outside Eretz Yisrael will be able to roll to Eretz Yisrael because in Eretz Yisrael is where Tchiyas HaMesim will be. By tradition, uh, Tchiyas HaMesim will begin on the Mount of Olives, on Harazesim. And that's why Harazesim became the original famous Jewish cemetery in the world. And that's why the Hebra Kadisha charges more money there than in other places. And you know that Jews like to be first in line, right? So it's going to happen, so you might as well, might as well be there. But that's the same concept, that there's a holiness to the land itself. And the holiness is that it's Eretz HaChayim, it's you're alive. Even if the person is physically not alive. But being in Eretz Yisrael, because of Echiper Admoso Amo, then he is considered to be alive. And the Gemara says, Tzadikim v'misosom nikroim chayim. Righteous people, even if they have passed from the world, are still called living people. And Rishoyim Bechayeyem, evil people, even if they're still walking around on the earth, Nikroyim Mesim, they're dead already. The definition of life and death is not necessarily whether a person is breathing. It has to do with our soul, it has to do with our eternity, it has to do with our memory, it has to do with what people think of us what generations think of us. And therefore, the, gener- the definition of Chaim and Mesim is different. So the Gemara therefore says, Yeshivas Eretz Yisrael mitzvah bifnei Living in Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah all by itself. So just being here is a mitzvah. You accomplish a mitzvah daily by being here. Not only that, the Gemara says, that Kola Mahalech Dalet Amos Beretz Yisrael. If you walk four Amos in Eretz Yisrael, every four Amos you walk, you have a mitzvah. I had a, I knew a great Jew, Elio Kitov, Monkatovsky. He had Elio Kitov wrote the Sefer Aparshias and the Sefer Atoda. Uh, he was one, of, he was a remarkable person. I remember he came to Chicago. I was 15 years old. He came to Chicago and he spoke. He was a gifted orator, just a tremendous orator. The old-time Polish orators that could speak for two hours and it was like uh, five minutes. And he was, a, he was a tremendously charismatic, wonderful person. And then I got to know him again in Miami and then uh, here in Eretz Yisrael before he passed away. I saw him a few times. So he told me a story once that a Jew, a rabbi, came from the United States and he was visiting him, and he started complaining about how things are here, which is not hard to do, <laughs> especially if you come from the outside, so then, you know. So if you read the newspaper here, you know, you're depressed every day. 
except for an occasional column. But otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, it's very depressing, right? So he was telling he was telling Monkatovsky everything that's wrong. So Monkatovsky took him by the hand, Eliokitov, he took him by the hand, and he took him outside the door of his apartment, and he said, come, we're going to take a walk. One, two, three, four, a mitzvah. One, two, three, four, a mitzvah. He made him walk four amas every time. He says, a mitzvah. He said, oh, that, that's how you have to look at Eretz Yisrael. Don't tell me what the... So it's a confusion, and I think that's an important point. He, he should not confuse... The government, the policies, the uh, the national structure of the state of Israel with Eretz Yisrael. It's two different things. And because we confuse the two, so unfortunately there are Jews that don't appreciate Eretz Yisrael. Because they don't like the government. Or they don't like the way Jews behave here. Or they see always the shadows instead of the light. But you're not allowed to see Eretz Yisrael that way. It was the whole lesson with the Meraglim that Moshe sent the spies. Everything they said was true. But then they added one thing. They said, but the land is no good. That, that sealed their doom. That you could say there are giants in the land. You can say it will be hard to conquer it. You can say there are great fortresses. You can say the United Nations is against us. You can say everything. That's all true. But you can't say anything about Eretz Israel. Motsi di Bosom Roa. They said bad things about the land. Eretz Ocheles Yoshveli, they said. It's a land that destroys its people. Oh no, God said, no, no, no. There you cross the red line. Can't talk about Eretz Yisrael. You have to always talk, Bishvocho Shel Eretz Yisrael. You always have to talk about what, the greatness of it. And the other things you can say. There's, there's no problem in saying that there are giants in the land, that it, it's going to be hard and it's going to be this, and the, and the Kanani are here and the Prezi are here, and all of that was true. They, they were not punished for saying that. That was their job to come back and give the report. But their conclusion of saying, Eretz Ocheles Yoshveli, that it's a country that destroys people, oh, no, no, no. No, 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 not that. That God didn't allow. And so that's a basic rule. So again, you know, you can disagree with the government, and they give you plenty of reason to do so. And you can disagree with policies, and you disagree, but you cannot disagree with Eretz Israel. Because that's an overriding value. It's such an overriding value that Chazal say, Gimel Olam You want to have a fast-tracked Olam You know, like in the computer now, uh, if uh, four seconds is too long for you to wait till you get on the Internet, so they have like a streaming broadband that's always on, and you're there in a second, right? You mean the shortcut. So what's the shortcut Olam So the Gemara says, Zador Eretz Yisrael. If you live in Eretz Yisrael, that's a shortcut Olam 
So the rabbi saw it as such an overriding value that uh, that it, it can take you to Olamabo. Just being an Eretz Yisrael can take you to Olamabo. And the Gemara said that you have to treat Eretz Yisrael with respect. The land, again. Gemara says, They didn't want to grow sheep, goats, in Eretz Yisrael because they eat up all the grass, they destroy the country. So they have to have special reservations for them in places, mostly in the deserts. There's zoning laws that the Gemara is full of regarding Eretz Yisrael, and especially regarding Yerushalayim. You can't have smoke in the city, and you can't have manufacturing. Because the place is holy. You have to treat it holy. And if it's holy, you can't do everything you want. It has restrictions with it. The Gemara says, why does it rain in the world? <laughs> How the Gemara talks. Why does it rain in the world? So the Gemara says, because Eretz Yisrael needs rain. Since Eretz Yisrael needs rain, so it rains in Ireland too. But if Eretz Yisrael wouldn't need rain, and that's what it says, that, Lo Eretz Mitzrayim, you're going to bring it to a place that's not like the land of Egypt where it never has to rain because they have the Nile River and they can irrigate everything. I'm bringing a place that's dry, that's desert, and you have to hope that it rains. And therefore, since the soil needs rain, so the whole world is blessed with rain. And that's why when we say Geshem and Tal, the prayers, so the prayers are for Eretz soil, even if we are living in different places, in different climes, and because of the fact that every place is blessed because of Eretz Yisrael. The Rosh was asked when he was the Roman Toledo in the uh, 1300s, the early 1300s, why in Spain, in Toledo, which has plenty of rain, uh, why should they say Talumota? Or Mashivaruach Murdageshim? Because it really doesn't affect them. And the Rosh answered, we don't say it for Toledo, we don't say it for Spain, we say it for Eretz Yisrael. If Eretz Yisrael will be blessed, then every place will be blessed. And if Eretz Yisrael is, God forbid, not blessed, so then the things aren't blessed in other places either. That is how Chazal saw Eretz Yisrael. They saw it as the focus of all blessings. The country itself. And one of the signs that the rabbi said of the impending redemption of the land of, of the Jewish people, rather, is when the land of Israel begins to produce. When you see uh, the fruit market full of every imaginable type of fruit and vegetable, it's something which was unheard of even uh, 30 years ago, 25 years ago in the country. And today we take it for granted. You know, and we're disappointed, you know, that uh, blueberries are out of season. But uh, Chazal saw 
in every piece of fruit and every vegetable that grew in the land of Israel, they saw holiness. Because that is the idea of mitzvos atulios vorens, of the mitzvahs that are dependent upon growing in Eretz Yisrael. The rabbis say, why did Moshe make such a fuss that he wants to go to Eretz Yisrael? And I prayed to God, the Lord says, 900 times, and until God said, you know, send the nudnik away, stop. I don't want to hear anymore. Don't talk about it anymore. So the Chazal says, so what does Moshe want? What is Moshe missing? Moshe is going all the mabah, Moshe has the Torah, Moshe is uh, intimate, so to speak, with God himself. So what does he need? So the Gemara says he needs the mitzvahs of Leosporitz. He needs to eat an apple that doesn't have orla, kilayim, that has miser, that has truma. That's what he needs. So we take it for granted, right? By us, an apple is an apple is an apple. But Jews always saw in it more than the apple. They always saw in it, it's a holiness because it's sanctified. It's sanctified with so many mitzvahs. And Chazal even goes so far as to say that all the mitzvahs that are performed outside the land of Israel, film, Kriyashma, Tfilah, all of the mitzvahs that Jews do the world over are only to keep in training for doing mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael. And that the real mitzvahs are only in Eretz Yisrael. So it gives us a different sense of being here. It certainly... Uh, uh, I always have that feeling, at least, on the rare times that I eat a fruit, that, uh, you know, look at me, right? Generally, I always have the feeling, you know, Moshe couldn't do it, and I'm doing it. Moshe wasn't here, and I'm here. Right? I take it for granted. But the rabbi saw in it this great holiness, this great uniqueness, this great special feeling. Because it's Eretz Asher Ene Hashem Shona It's the holy land. It's a place where God is, so to speak. And because of that, the rabbis called it Palter in Shomelech, the king's palace. So there are duties upon us because if you're in the king's palace you're supposed to behave yourself. But however that may be, it's still the king's palace. And therefore that is the feeling, the emotion that goes with it. Now Chazal saw in uh, Yeshu Veretz Yisrael uh, Overriding values. They said, the, for instance, Yishaveretz Yisrael in certain instances overrides the Shabbat. The Gemara says, Mutter, it is permissible, Lokachas Botim Beretz Yisrael Minakum, on Shabbat to buy property in Eretz Yisrael from the hands of non Jews because of the fact that Yishaveretz Yisrael takes precedence. 
JM in the AM. Good morning and welcome to 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. It's Friday morning on this August 1st, day 5 in the month of Menachem Av, day 5 of our 9 days format here at JM in the AM. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon. Rabbi Beryl Wine is in the midst of a conversation, or I should say a lecture, on the topic of the land of Israel. We'll be in the land of Israel, Bezrat Hashem, next Thursday. Start our broadcast from Yom NCSY in Israel. And then Friday morning, live from Stay Road. Actually, not live, because we'll, uh, we'll be in Stay Road Friday morning, but we'll be broadcasting from Stay Road one week from today as we, uh, participate in a very special Hachnasa Sefer Torah, which we'll uh, talk about coming up at JM in the AM. Candle lighting on this era of Shabbos, 751. Many synagogues begin earlier. 751 is candle lighting time, and of course, Tuesday is Tisha B'Av. Tuesday is Tisha B'Av. The news from Israel, well, the ceasefire seems to be over, and um, the IDF has released names of five soldiers who were killed in a Hamas mortar attack on Thursday. The uh, the ages of the soldiers who were killed in that attack, 22, 22, 20, 20, and 31. The latest news is that the IDF, um, the IDF spokesman's office is stating that it is feared that an IDF soldier has been kidnapped by terrorists in the southern Gaza Strip. Happened Friday morning. Um, again, I think it's safe to say the ceasefire is over, just based on uh, what's happening right now and how Operation Protective Edge has been uh, ramped up a bit in light of this news. An IDF soldier is feared to have been kidnapped in the southern Gaza Strip. This according to the IDF spokesman's office. I read from the Jerusalem Post live blog about Israel's Operation Protective Edge. And uh, now who knows what direction this could take. If this is, if this is in fact, if this is in fact what happened, and it seems that uh, unfortunately it is about this kidnapping, then who knows what direction this will take. The 72-hour ceasefire brokered by the United States and the U.N. ended hours after it went into effect as fighting resumed on both sides Friday morning. Code red sirens rang out in southern Israel around 10 a.m. as Palestinian media reports of Israeli artillery fire began to surface. At least 40 people were killed in the Israeli shelling of southern Gaza since that time. Palestinian news agencies also reported that three other people were shot by IDF sniper fire in the southern Gaza Strip. Israel reported that over 15 rockets and mortars had been fired into Israel since the fighting resumed, that several seven rockets had been successfully intercepted by Iron Dome. It was not immediately clear whether the rocket fire or the shelling came first, but the Israeli foreign ministry and an unnamed Israeli official from inside the prime minister's office blamed Hamas for breaking the ceasefire. Once again, Hamas has broken its commitment to a ceasefire, a commitment made to John Kerry and the United Nations Secretary General. That's the latest from Israel. Of course, the, uh, one of the most concerning parts, a lot of, a lot of parts to be concerned about of this newscast, but 
One of the most concerning parts is that an IDF soldier is feared to have been kidnapped by terrorists in the southern Gaza Strip this morning at around 9.30 in the morning, according to an IDF spokesman. And who knows what will happen now. Ten minutes before 7 o'clock, JM in the AM with 71 degrees, afternoon thunderstorms and a high temperature of 83. Rain late tonight, low 67, morning thunderstorms for Shabbos with a high of 73 degrees. We're at 71 right now. Rabbi Beryl Wine in the midst of a lecture about the Holy Land of Israel at JM in the AM. And uh, the Gemara says that Eretz Yisrael, Domel Lamila, the mitzvah of Eretz Yisrael, is equal to the mitzvah of circumcision. Ma Mila Docha Shabbos, just like the mitzvah of Mila is Docha Shabbos, and if the child is born on Shabbat and his Brit is on Shabbat, that was usually the origin of the name Shabsai. Because a child that was born on Shabbat and circumcised on Shabbat, so he was a Shabbos Jew. So too, Eretz Yisrael, Docha Shabbat. Eretz Yisrael also, in certain instances, is also Docha de Shabbat. And therefore, we have this great quality simply because of the holiness of Eretz Yisrael. Now the Gemara says even more radical statements. Uh, if the Gemara wouldn't say it, I certainly wouldn't say it. Certainly not on television. But it's a Gemara. The Gemara says, A Jew should live in Eretz Yisrael, even in a city, in a community that is mainly non-Jewish. Rather than living in Chutz in a city that is very Jewish. Anybody who lives in Eretz Yisrael sooner or later comes to the realization that there's a God in the world. And in Chutz Loretz, after a while, God takes a very secondary position. Now that's a very strong statement. If we would apply it today, we could say it without mentioning names of communities, but we all know, you know, that there are holy Jewish communities throughout the world. And here in Israel, there are places where, you know, it's not so hot. It's not so great. But the Gemara says Eretz Yisrael is such an overriding value. Living in Eretz Yisrael is such an overriding value that it overrides that too. The Gemara says, Kol Ador Be'eretz Yisrael, Shorui below of him. Someone who lives in Eretz Yisrael is as though he lives without sin. So the Mephoshim explained, because the Yisurim of Eretz Yisrael are of such a nature that our sins are forgiven daily. If you'll think about it, every day, every day something happens, right? You listen to the news, I don't know anybody that walks away from the news happy. So that instant of pain, when you hear the stupidities that go on, 
and the problems, right? So that instant is a kapora already. Because one of the uh, facets of Eretz Yisrael is that it's machape. And since it's niknis biyasurim, so therefore the sins are more easily erased. So there was always an eternal covenant between the Jewish people and the land of Israel, whoever the Jews were. The Jews always, they named their uh, streets after uh, the land of Israel. I know I went uh, once uh, through Provence, every little town where Jews once were, Lunel and Montpellier and uh, Arles and uh, Orange, and uh, Posquares, all the towns where the Chachme Provence lived. So there are no Jews left. All the Jews are gone. Even, even a Jewish cemetery left. It's nothing. But in all of them, in the medieval part of the town that is preserved, there is a street called Rue Jerusalem. And Jews always remembered it. Whoever they went. And Nachman of Breslov said... Every step that I take is towards Jerusalem. That was the covenant that Jews had. And even though uh, for centuries on end they had no chance to physically achieve it, but mentally in their minds they achieved it. Spiritually they achieved it. They were home. Therefore, even in the darkest places of Eastern Europe and in the mellows of Morocco, uh, Jews were attached to Eretz Yisrael. And they were attached to Eretz Yisrael because of the fact that it was a value. It was not a matter of Jewish nationalism. It was a matter of a spiritual value that held a place in their heart and soul. And uh, that's part of the problem. Uh what happened uh, over a hundred years ago with the coming of secular Zionism is that uh, secular Zionism uh, replaced the value of Eretz Yisrael and it replaced it with the value of Jewish nationalism of being a nation to a certain extent we're going to be like everybody else we have our own country and our own flag, and our own army, and our own anthem, and we'll be like everyone else. And it's no surprise, therefore, that in 1904, when England offered Uganda to Herzl, he took it. Because he wasn't sold on Eretz Israel, he was sold on the fact that the Jews need a national home, they need a place of refuge, and that national home, a place of refuge, could be Uganda, right? It's just too bad that America didn't offer San Diego. And the Zionist Congress approved the Ugandan plan. It fell apart because evidently God was not interested in Uganda. And it's interesting that the Eastern European Jews, led by Weizmann, uh, were the main opponents of this idea because 
uh, the Eastern European Jew, even when he was secularized, still was attached to Eretz Israel. Even if he was a national, a believer in Jewish nationalism, even if he was a believer in, uh, and in socialism and in all of the other things that rode the horse of Zionism, labor Zionism, all of the things, all of the isms, but they still were attached to Eretz Israel. And in being attached to Eretz Israel, they were not willing to take Uganda. And that was the whole discussion uh, throughout uh, the, uh, all of the 20th century. And now that we live in a post-Zionist, modernist period, so we're back again that Eretz Israel is not the value anymore. There are other values. But that Eretz Israel should be a value? No, that, that no longer resonates. That's part of the damage of secularism. It's not that people don't put on film. It's not that people are not Sabbath observers. That's not the issue. And those who think it's the issue only see it in tunnel vision in a very narrow sense. It's that the whole view of the Jewish people, the whole history of the Jewish people, the whole goal, the whole etgar, the whole challenge of the Jewish people is different. JM in the AM. Good morning and welcome to 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. We are heading toward the top of the hour, our news from Israel. The news uh, includes the fact that uh, there is a break in the ceasefire, believe it or not. The ceasefire basically has ended. About uh, half hour ago, the uh, IDF spokesman's office reported that an IDF soldier is feared to have been kidnapped by terrorists in the southern Gaza Strip at around 9.30 this morning in Israel. Rocket alert sirens have gone off in Ashkelon over the last 10 minutes or so. The IDF released the name of the five soldiers who were killed yesterday in the Hamas mortar attack in the Eshkol region. And uh, who knows where we're heading now. The um, the article that's been posted on the Jerusalem Post regarding the uh, episode of the kidnapping, a Hamas attack on IDF soldiers in southern Gaza, which occurred an hour and a half after the start of a humanitarian truce, ended with the suspected kidnapping of a soldier. The incident is ongoing, the army adds, and the IDF is in the midst of operational and intelligence efforts to track down the soldier. The statement came after Palestinians reported heavy exchanges of fire in southern Gaza in which several Hamas attackers were reportedly killed in IDF return fire. Around 10 a.m., rocket and artillery fire resumed, bringing an end to the 72-hour humanitarian ceasefire brokered by the U.N. and the U.S. that went into effect just two hours prior. Palestinian media reported heavy casualties, at least 40 dead. Rocket fire continued to hound southern Israel. IDF attacked 50 Hamas targets across Gaza overnight, including rocket launch zones and targets that were hit by the Navy and infantry in a combined attack. The terrorists seen near a tunnel were killed by paratroopers. Two terrorists were killed by paratroopers. Israeli Air Force struck an Islamic Jihad control room, killing two terrorists. 
Meanwhile, the Givati infantry units uncovered two tunnel shafts and destroyed them. Secondary explosions were seen in the blast. So that is the report as of now. Suspected kidnapping of an Israeli soldier. The humanitarian truce has ended. This is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. News from Israel is coming up next. We'll close out the um, lecture bar by wine about the land of Israel. Malcolm Holmline at 740 with the latest news and news analysis. Malcolm Holmline coming up at 740 this morning here at JM in the AM. It's Arab Shabbos Parshas Dvarim with uh, an Arab Shabbos Chazon with candle lighting at 751 later today. Many synagogues begin earlier, 7.51, official candlelighting time on this era of Shabbos. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday is next. Boker Tov from JM and the M. Galitzal, Shah Stein, Khan Shibel Karmi Mansur, Imasha Koreach Shav. חשש, חייל צהל נחטף, כתבנו טל אברהם. הסלמה חמורה ברצועת עזה, סמוך לשעה תשע וחצי התפתחו חילופי אש עם מחבלים סמוך לרפיח. לאחר ההתקלות באש מספר נפגעים ללוחמינו התברר שאחד הלוחמים חסר, צהל פועט כעת באזור ומתנהלת שם לחימה. צהל שב לתקוף ברחבי כל הרצועה. כתבנו ג'קי חוגי מוסר שלפי דיווחי פלסטינים צהל פתח בהרעשה כבדה וממושכת על אזורי מגורים ממזרח לחן יונס לטענתם עשרות נהרגו כאן בגלי צהל נעבור בתום המהדורה למשדר מיוחד עם עדכונים על כל ההתפתחויות הזעקות נשמעו בדקות האחרונות באזור אשקלון ובעוטף עזה טיפת ברזל ירתה בצהריים שתי רקטות שנורו למועצה האזורית מרחבים כתבנו רמי שני מוסר ששלוש רקטות נפלו בשטחים פתוחים במועצה האזורית אשכול אחת מהן גרמה לשרפה שנמצאת בתהליכי כיבוי. כתבתנו אליל שחר מוסרת שישראל הודיעה לאום שהפסקת האש שהחלה בשמונה בבוקר והייתה אמורה להימשך שלושה ימים מבוטלת. כתבתנו עופרי אשל. בעקבות ההתפתחויות האחרונות מפרסם שליח האום למזרח התיכון רוברט סרי הודעה בה הוא דוחק בפלסטינים לקיים את הפסקת האש ולעמוד בהתחייבותם מאמש. עוד נכתב כי האום מודאג עמוקות מהשלכות האירועים האחרונים והאפשרות להסלמה משמעותית בשטח. הותר לפרסום שמו של ההרוג החמישי מפגיעת פיצצת המרגמה אמש בשטח כינוס במועצה האזורית אשכול. סרן במילואים לירן אדיר אדרי, בן 31 מאזוז, גם הוא לוחם עוצבת ברק. בעוד זמן קצר תחל בבית העלמין בקריית עתה הלווייתו של סמל ראשון שי קושניר, בן 20 מקריית מוצקין. סמל ראשון נועם רוזנטל, בן 20 ממיתר. הובא למנוחות בחלקה הצבאית בבית העלמין ביישובו. ראש המועצה אבנר בן גרא דיבר בגלי צה"ל. אתמול בלילה, לקראת חצות, קיבלנו את הבשורה. לצערנו זו גם לוויה שנייה השבוע, גם סרן ליעד לביא שהיה ביום שני ועכשיו זה. רב סמל במילואים דניאל מרש, בן 22, מראשון לציון, יובא למנוחות בשעה שלוש וחצי בבית העלמין בחולון. מועד הלווייתו של סרן עמרי טל, בן 22, מיהוד, טרם נקבע. כתבתנו שרון פולבר, שוחחה עם אביו, יורם. הבן שלי היה ילד מיוחד במינו. קודם כל, הוא היה יפה תואר. שחקן קולנוע. משהו פשוט מדהים. הוא הכיר כל שביל ושביל במדינה הזו. 
כל יום חופשי הוא היה יוצא כדי לסייר בשטח. אני אהבתי אותו אהבה אינסופית, אבל אנחנו לא נשבר, אנחנו נהיה חזקים, ואנחנו נתמודד עם כל האתגרים. מזג האוויר חם מהרגיל, מחר ירידה קלה בטמפרטורות. אלה החדשות שעורך עידו דוד כהן. JM in the AM, well, the news from Israel, not much different than what we've been saying for the last few minutes here at JM in the AM. A Hamas attack on IDF soldiers in southern Gaza, which occurred an hour and a half after the start of a humanitarian truce, ended with the suspected kidnapping of a soldier. The army says the incident is ongoing and the IDF is in the midst of operational and intelligence efforts to track down the soldier. But that is what's being reported. A result of this battle in the southern part of Gaza, it looks like an Israeli soldier has been kidnapped. J.M. and A.M. at six minutes after seven o'clock on this Friday morning, Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon. We pray for our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land. We pray for the brave soldiers of the Israel Defense Forces. Candle lighting 751 on this era of Shabbos. Tuesday is, of course, Tisha B'Av. We are in the midst of our nine days format here at JM in the AM. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine will conclude his lecture on the land of Israel right here at JM in the AM. Um, and we'll be like everyone else. And it's no surprise, therefore, that in 1904... When England offered Uganda to Herzl, he took it. Because he wasn't sold on Eretz Israel, he was sold on the fact that the Jews need a national home, they need a place of refuge. And that national home, a place of refuge, could be Uganda, right? It's just too bad that America didn't offer San Diego. And the Zionist Congress approved the Ugandan plan. Fell apart because evidently God was not interested in Uganda. And it's interesting that the Eastern European Jews, led by Weizmann, uh, were the main opponents of this idea because... Uh, the Eastern European Jew, even when he was secularized, still was attached to Eretz Israel. Even if he was a national, a believer in Jewish nationalism, even if he was a believer in, uh, and in socialism and in all of the other things that rode the horse of Zionism, labor Zionism, all of the things, all of the isms, but they still were attached to Eretz Israel. And in being attached to Eretz Israel, they were not willing to take Uganda. And that was the whole discussion uh, throughout uh, the, uh, all of the 20th century. And now that we live in a post-Zionist, modernist period, so we're back again that Eretz Israel is not the value anymore. There are other values. But that Eretz Yisrael should be a value? You know, that, that no longer resonates. 
that's part of the damage of secularism. It's not that people don't put on film. It's not that people are not Sabbath observers. That's not the issue. And those who think it's the issue only see it in tunnel vision in a very narrow sense. It's that the whole view of the Jewish people, the whole history of the Jewish people, the whole goal, the whole etgar, the whole challenge of the Jewish people is different. Because now it's no, you know, why should we uh, now that we want to be Venezuela? We really want to be Canada, but Canada is big, so we'll settle for being Venezuela. But that's not Eretz soil. And that vision and that way of viewing it uh, is really uh, the casualty of uh, a century of secularism. That's the main problem with secularism. And it reflects itself in a hundred different issues. Uh, But that's the main uh, situation that exists. So the Gemara gives us an example of Eretz Yisrael again. The Gemara says... Maseb Reb Yudo ben Bobov, Reb Matisio ben Chorosh, Reb Chanino ben Achi. Now these three uh, great Rabbonim, Tanoim, lived after the Hadrianic persecutions, uh, when all the rabbis, Reb Yudo ben Boba, will eventually be uh, martyred by the Romans. And the uh, Eretz soil is falling apart. The Romans are running it. Uh, the Jews are being persecuted. Uh, the uh, yeshivas find it hard to maintain themselves. It's not a happy time for the Jewish people. It's about the year 150 of the Common Era, 140 of the Common Era. So they, uh, so they, they're leaving. They're yordim. They're going to leave Eretz Yisrael. And they have justifications for it. You're talking about three of the great Tanoim. Higiu Liflatus. So they came to the city of Philatus, which is on the border, the border of Israel and Syria. And they remembered that they're leaving Eretz Israel. They saw the sign, Mokshim Lefonecho, the border, Gvul Lefonecho, the borders ahead of you. Have to get their password ready to cross. They remember that they're leaving Eretz Yisrael. Zokfu All of a sudden, they lifted up their eyes. So the Mephorshim say, "What do you mean they lifted up their eyes?" All of a sudden, they looked into the future, and they looked into the past. The Zolgu and their eyes filled with tears. Vikaru bigdeim, and they ripped their clothes in agony. Yomru and they said, Yeshiva Seretz Yisrael Shkula Keneget Kola Mitzvah Shabbatora. Staying in Eretz Yisrael outweighs all of the mitzvahs of the Torah, the Gemara says. The Chosrulim Koma. And they came back home. They couldn't leave. And we have halochas uh, that it's not so simple. Uh, to leave Eretz Yisrael, there has to be uh, 
very good cause. So in today's world, I don't know, in today's world, you know, you get on a plane and it's not such a big deal and who doesn't want to see Cyprus and Croatia and other places. So, uh, you know, it's, we, don't, we don't hear how that resonates either. But I know Jews here that have never left Yerushalayim in their lifetime. Never gone outside of the environs of Yerushalayim. And I know Jews who've never left there at Sisera. Because again, it's a value. And there are certain people who feel that value within their bones. So we see that also, even though there are great yeshivas all over the world, but all the Talmud HaChachamim come to learn in Eretz Yisrael, right? With the thousands of young men that come from the exile to learn in Eretz Yisrael. The variety of yeshivas, the amount of Torah in Eretz Yisrael is just mind-boggling. Who would have imagined it uh, even a few short decades ago that we would have such numbers and such a variety hundreds of yeshivas <coughs> tens of thousands of students and the quality of Torah so I Torah 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 there's no Torah outside of Eretz Yisrael the Torah outside Eretz Yisrael again is only training to be in Eretz Yisrael Mount Gemara says, how come Eretz Israel is such a nothing? Right? If it's such a great country, then Gemara says, Kol umo not lo kifly in Eretz Israel. Every nation has vast amounts of territory. Valorotsu Yisrael lito Eretz Israel, shoisaktana mikol arotsu. So the Jews said, you're giving us Eretz Israel, you us but peanut of a land, right? And be you, what? A land that you can drive in two and a half hours and you drive the whole country, right? I once drove through Texas, 990 miles from one end to the other. It's two days of hard driving. It's one state. There's a ranch in Texas, Lyndon Johnson's ranch, which is bigger than New Jersey. It's bigger than Eretz Israel, one guy's ranch. I think Sharon is interested in it, but uh, <laughs> well, they, you know. And so the Jews said, "Well, you're giving us Eretz Yisrael. You're giving us what are you shortchanging us?" Omer Hakadosh Baruch Hu. The Rebbeinu Shalom said, "You don't appreciate what I'm giving you. What I give you is not measured in kilometers. It's not measured in size." It's not measured in natural resources. I'm purposely giving you this land. Because this is the land that has holiness to it. And so that has nothing to do with size. Omer HaKodesh Borchu, God said, Alavai Yehun Bonai Imi Be'eretz Yisrael Afal Pi so. I wish that my children would be with me here in the land of Israel, even if they defile it. So God is uh, always more tolerant than we are. 
God can overlook things that we find it hard to overlook. We're not interested that people should come and be matame. Eretz Yisrael should bring dishonor to it. Should not treat it as a holy place. But again, the Talmud said, this is really a medrash, a yalkut. The medrash puts, so to speak, the metaphor in God's mouth, so to speak, that what? That I'm willing. If they want to come and live with me here, so then the, the mitzvah of Yeshiva's Eretz Yisrael, the value of Yeshiva's Eretz Yisrael, even if they are metameyat. The Gemara says further, Afro shall Eretz Yisrael gorem lechuva. Again, living in Eretz Yisrael will bring a person to tshuva. Aye, we don't see it yet. You will see it. There are more today than there were 20 years ago, and there are more than there were 100 years ago, and 100 years from now it will be better. We don't appreciate the change that has occurred in the country. Because Eretz Yisrael, again, the Yisurim are gorim lechuva. Imagine if we had unlimited peace. We had the Rose Garden of the Middle East. Oh, you know, so, uh, you know, people, uh, people would think it's all right to marry Arabs, and Arabs would think it's all right to marry Jews, and we'd do business together, and we'd be friends together, and it would be wonderful. But God apparently doesn't think it's so wonderful because he doesn't let it happen. And so every turn that we take leaves us up another different blind alley. So it's going to tshuva. It makes us think about being Jewish. Gemara says, You want to see God in this world? Live in Eretz Yisrael. There you'll see him. Because again, and we can certainly testify to it because this whole country is one long, large miracle each and every day. Lule, Hashem, would not be for the Lord. Who knows how anything would be able to exist or survive here. So you want to see it. So you live in Eretz Israel, you see it. I think all of us who are here... Uh, Probably everyone here uh, came originally from outside Eretz Yisrael, senses the difference of being here and of not being here. And even though we may long for the Alterheim and for the comforts and for the benefits that exist, and they do exist, I don't get me wrong, I never speak in denigration of what the Jews in the exile are and what they have accomplished perhaps even of the necessity of having Jews in the exile. Nevertheless, uh, Eretz Israel is a special and different place. And it reflects the fact that it's a holy place, and it reflects the, the idea that the Holy One, blessed be here, is here, and that therefore in that unique quality, Eretz Israel is a special value, a value that many times overrides all other values because of its importance and holiness. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. J.M. in the A.M. Friday. My thanks to Rabbi Wine. His lectures have been an amazing uh, addition for our, uh, an amazing part, I should say, 
of our nine days format here at JM in the AM, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Uh, Friday morning on this 1st of August, the 5th of Menachem Av, it's Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon, uh, Tisha B'Av is Monday night and Tuesday, we're here Tuesday morning with Kinnis live on the radio. Tuesday night, 6.30, on our stream, on our network, jmnam.org, you will hear Charlie Harari as he will, uh, with the uh, amazing people at Project Inspire, inspire everybody toward the end of Tisha B'Av. That begins 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time on the stream, on our network at jmnam.org, nachumsegel.com. Charlie Harari, Tuesday night with Project Inspire, and it is going to be uh, quite inspirational. He did it last year. It was a massive hit, and I'm sure that uh, he'll inspire everybody again this year. Reminder, Tuesday, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, 2 p.m., bring your talis, tefillin, sidurim, 2 p.m., Mincha, Isaiah Wall, 1st Avenue at 43rd Street, New York City. Let's make sure there's a massive gathering there that day especially in these times. want to wish a congratulations to the uh, amazing Bike for Chai cyclists who yesterday got to the world's greatest finish line at Camp Simcha having raised $4.06 million. What an incredible effort to Avi and Yoel and everybody who's uh, involved, and there are a lot of people involved raising a lot of money for the cause a big yashikoch and mazel tov, bike for chai, a massive success. And we wish them a, a big congratulations from all of us here at JM in the AM. Want to wish Yaakov Auerbach a, a happy birthday. Yaakov Auerbach, a happy birthday to you from all of us here at JM in the AM. 71 degrees, afternoon thunderstorms, a high temperature of 83. Malcolm Honline coming up. We'll talk about the events of this week and certainly talk about the uh, latest news from Israel, a Hamas attack on IDF soldiers in southern Gaza, which occurred an hour and a half after the start of a humanitarian truce, ended with the suspected kidnapping of a soldier. That is what we know at the moment. And uh, what can I say? Who knows what direction this is going to take now. We'll see how the Israeli government and army responds. But it does seem that this uh, story is, in fact, unfortunately true. And that, uh, and that there is a, um, an authentic report that an Israeli soldier has been kidnapped. Malcolm Holmline will join us uh, again at 7.40 this morning, about 15 minutes from now here at JM in the AM. We'll talk about this story, this new development, and of course we'll talk about a lot of different things that have been, uh, that have been going on during this week in Israel and the Jewish world. Rabbi Beryl Wine's uh, overview of Eicha is next here on a Friday morning as we get ready for Eicha night this coming Monday night. This is JM in the AM.
as part of the synagogue service. There is a custom in certain communities that it is read during the day, Tishabod as well, but that's not a universal custom. And it's not part of the usual morning service. The Book of Eitha is translated in English as Lamentations, because basically it laments the destruction of the Jewish national state, of the temple, and of the fate that befell the Jewish people during the times of the destruction of the temples. The Book of Eitha is attributed to the Novi Yirmiyo. He's the author. And according to our tradition, the book was written not as a reaction to the destruction of the temple, but it was written as prophecy before the destruction of the temple. And it was written, so to speak, as a warning as to what would happen. According to the Talmud, we read in Tanakh that the king, Yehoiakim, there were three brothers that were the last kings of Judah. The great king was Yoshiahu, who was the father of the three brothers. Yoshiahu was righteous, he was a tzaddik. But he disobeyed the advice of the Novi. He made an alliance and went to war in a battle that was really none of his business. And he was killed in the war. And his death, more than anything else, sealed the fate of the first commonwealth, the first temple. And he had three sons, each of whom succeeded the other one. First was Yoachim. When Yoachim died, then Yoachim succeeded. And the third brother, the last king of Judah, Sitiot. Now, Yehoiakimio is alive during the reign of all of these kings. And to put it mildly, he's a pain. They don't know how to deal with him. He's uh, anti-government, as were most of the prophets. And they saw their role as being the moral conscience of the people and not as being a psychophant, someone that agrees with everything that happens. When, uh, the, uh, when Yoshiyahu was killed in the war, so the first uh, chapter of Echa, which we have as the fourth chapter, uh, 
beginning Eicha Yuam Zohar, our gold been tarnished. Yishne Hakesem Hatov, the great, uh, wonderful Tiara has been desecrated. Tishtapech no Avne Kodesh, the holy stones of the high priest were spilled, Baroshkol Kutzos, were spilled as as though they were garbage dung on the streets of Jerusalem. That uh, chapter is the Novi's eulogy for the king Yoshio. So even though in our Seder of the Megillah it appears as the fourth chapter, chronologically it's the first chapter. And it deals with the fact that uh, Yoshio was killed in the war, the great righteous king, the one last hope of Israel, so to speak, because he was the one who could have turned the situation around. And when he was killed, so then uh, there was no one to really take up the cudgel anymore uh, for uh, Jewish tradition or holiness uh, to fight against the corruption that was rampant in the country. And therefore, this is the first chapter chronologically, even though it's the fourth chapter that we have in the book. So he had this chapter, and then he wrote uh, the first chapter, Echo Yoshva, and then he wrote the second chapter, Echo Yoiv. Those three chapters form the original Megillah of Echo. This original Megillah of Eicha was considered so subversive because, again, it's not a reaction to the destruction of the temple. It's a prophecy. It's a prophecy that the government's going to fall, uh, that the Babylonians will conquer the country, the temple will be burned, the Jewish people are going to be taken into exile. No government likes such prophecies. And therefore, in an act of uh, censorship, uh, the king, Yehoiakim, burned the Megillah. We read about it in the uh, book of Malachim, in the book of Kings, that he took the Megillah that Yermio wrote, and he threw it on the fire to burn it. So those were the first, the first two chapters, plus the fourth chapter, which is the uh, eulogy regarding the death of King Yoshio. Then, uh, since Yermio uh, didn't keep quiet, but publicly preached in the streets of Jerusalem, uh, this message uh, that the destruction was about to happen, so he was arrested and placed in a dungeon, placed in prison. Anyone who thinks that it's a fun job being a prophet for the Jewish people uh, should reconsider that notion. The Jewish people are a tough people, toughest people in the world. We wouldn't be here if we wouldn't be so tough. But because we are so tough, it's hard to deal with them. Hard to be a rabbi for them. Hard to be a teacher for them. Hard to run a government for them. Menachem Begin said that the uh, 
last government in the land of Israel that Haaretz newspaper approved of was the British mandate. And that pretty much sums it up. So he's thrown into jail. He's in the dungeon. Now you can see the dungeon. I don't know if you want to see the dungeon, but you can see it. It's the Chatzera Matara, uh, which is in East Jerusalem. I've been there a number of times. Today it's a banana market because our cousins have a great sense of history. And they, uh, you know, they preserve things. So today it's the major banana market. Bananas are stored in this cave which leads down to the dungeon. But that was the dungeon in which the prophet Irmio was placed. And he was in prison for a number of years until he was really freed by the Babylonians who destroyed the city and ruled everybody in jail. Much as the Americans did in Iraq. In the dungeon, he wrote the third chapter of the book. I am the person who has seen affliction. I have been punished. I would be led in darkness and not in light because the dungeon was a dark place. Zenobi Yermio had a disciple, a Boruch ben Meiria. Boruch ben Meiria would later be the teacher of Ezra. So Boruch is the uh, bridge between the first temple and the second temple. And he was a great man. And much of what we know about the Novi, we know through Boruch ben Meiria, who helped edit the book of Eicha, and helped edit the book of Yermio as well. And he would visit him in the dungeon, and according to some opinions in our tradition, uh, he took the dictation from the Navi, uh, which forms this third chapter. So now we've spoken about four of the five chapters. The fifth chapter, the last chapter, which is different than all the other chapters, because the first four chapters all are in alphabetical order. Their acrostic follows the alphabet. Eicha is Aleph, follows every posseh. It is written 22 psukim, following the alphabet. But the last chapter, and the third chapter, Aniyah Gever, one written in jail is a triple alphabet. 66 psukis, uh, three times Aleph, three times Bet, three times Gimel, etc. Uh, there, there are many reasons why uh, we have uh, things written according to the acrostic of the alphabet. Gemara uh, discusses, for instance, uh, why Ashrei is the standard prayer. The prayer that we say three times a day. Why was that chapter of the healing chosen? The more advances two reasons. More brother. One reason is because it follows the alphabet. It follows the alphabet. Good old 
mere fact that it's in alphabetical order. See, here also the Novi wanted this to be memorized. He wanted the, in a way, the prophecy was that God knew that uh, we were going to have 2,000 years of troubles and this book would last. Not a book about one occurrence. It's a book about the faith of the Jewish people in history. So therefore, it was written in alphabetical order, so uh, that it would be remembered. I have to also remember that we're talking, uh, there's no printing press. Having handwritten scrolls is a luxury. Not only handwritten scrolls, I... Uh, when I grew up uh, shortly after the American Civil War, so the... Uh, Very few people had a copy of the Talmud in their house. Could afford it. Who had it? My father, Shalubu, well, tells me that in his yeshivas in Eastern Europe, when he was a student in Grodnev by Rabshimon Shkot, the yeshiva didn't have a full set, a full set of the Talmud. So what Rabshimon did is he went around and he took the young men that had the best memories. And he had them memorize, memorize an entire tractate of the Talmud, so that if you found in Tosfos there was a reference that is Gemara, and the Gemara is not on the shelf, so you didn't have to go anywhere. You went to a person, and he told you what the Gemara said. That's 1920. That's not 1650. Today, you know, every bar mitzvah kid's got 28, uh, you know, you've got, the, you've got an Arskol shot, a Steinjel shot, a this shot, a that shot. There's nothing left for your father-in-law to buy for you. <laughs> you may have to end up just taking the girl. <laughs> Which is the only way to look at it, by the way, my friends. So, uh, he intended that people should know this, and they would have to know it by So therefore, that's the order of the olive base that exists here. Uh, that four of the five chapters follow the olive base. And the word itself asks that in one chapter, the tzaddik is before the pay. It's out of order. The Gemara has a whole drosha about it. Because the Gemara is interested in text. Basically, the Gemara always is based upon text. What does the text say? And why did they use this word, and why did they use that word? And why is it repeated, and why is it not repeated? And why does it have an extra letter, and why doesn't it have an extra letter? So we are loyal to text. So therefore, in the text, when we see that the olive base is out of order, so then we have to come up with an explanation as to why it is. The fifth chapter is not in any order. Fifth chapter is written in response to the Hurban. So, uh, therefore, it is to a great extent uh, chaotic. It reflects the trauma. Fifth chapter also has 23, 22 uh, verses to it, rather, but it does not have any alphabetical order to it. And that's the chapter that is in response to the uh, 
the witness chapter, so to speak, in response to the actual destruction that the Navi sees in front of his eyes. Now, the book of Eicha, so this week I'm going to talk to you about Eicha, and next week we'll talk about the Gila, about the additional prayers and poems and analogies that have been written over the centuries. But the book of Eicha is the basis for the Kino. You cannot really understand what the poets who wrote the Kino wanted if you don't understand what the book of Eicha wants. And it's based upon the verses and based upon the language and based upon the ideas and values that are reflected in the book. So the book of Eicha is the keystone. And if uh, for whatever reason a person finds oneself in a position where one cannot recite the keynote, doesn't have a copy of it or something, or it's stuck out somewhere in the wilds, the book of Eicha should be read anyway. But the book of Eicha is the main centerpiece of Tishimot, so to speak. Now, the Novi in the first chapter compares the grandeur of Jerusalem to what happened to Jerusalem. The city that was so well populated, the city that was the uh, great city in the world, now sits Bodod, means alone, isolated, forlorn. Nobody there. Now, one of the ideas that we find throughout Tanakh is that the city of Yerushalayim is personified. It's not just streets and stones and buildings. It's an entity. It exists as a soul, as emotion to it. So he says the city, which he will describe later as being like a mother whose children have been taken from her, God forbid. So the city weeps. It's not only the people that weep, it's the city that weeps. J.M. and the A.M., of course, Rivera Wine, the Eicha Overview, as we get closer and closer to Monday night, uh, when we say Eicha on Tisha B'Av, and of course, uh, uh, Monday night and Tuesday, Tisha B'Av itself, as we get ready for um, what will be the end of the nine days, and uh, hopefully will be the last Tisha B'Av. Um, hopefully we wouldn't have to even observe it this year, but you know what I mean. Friday morning on this 1st of August, the 5th of Menachem Av, J.M. in the A.M., uh, with a reminder, three, uh, 2 p.m. on Tuesday, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall. Bring your uh, talus and tefillin and sidurim, Mincha, 2 p.m., across the street from the United Nations, 1st Avenue and 43rd Street in New York City. Uh, I want to thank our friends at JewishWorldReview.com, who uh, at this time especially have an amazing array of articles and analysis regarding what's going on in the Middle East. You can uh, you could just spend hours and hours, as many of you I'm sure are, uh, reading and seeing and uh, watching what's happening from so many different angles. So a big thank you to JewishWorldReview.com. We continue to recommend our amazing uh, online network to all of their incredible readers. Erev Shabbos, Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos, Chazon, candle lighting at 7.51 on this Erev Shabbos. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents 
of major American Jewish organizations, joins us for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Oh, thank you. After a very eventful night. Oh, that's for sure. What do we know about the uh, kidnapping of an Israeli soldier? What is the latest? IDF is indicating that this appears to be the case, that it was done. Hamas claims that it was done before the ceasefire went into effect. They're saying it's not true. It was done afterwards, and the ceasefire has now collapsed, not just because of that, because of a series of attacks that uh, they engaged in. And uh, it's, it's, uh, the, the, the fighting now seems to be uh, raging. There were missiles fired at Israel. Uh, before the ceasefire collapsed, and um, we'll have to see now what will happen. If the impression is that Israel's had an aggressive attitude, um, and whether we should put it that way or not is, you know, for another time, but let's say Israel has certainly been um, making a strong military statement over the last 24 days, uh, this episode could really ramp things up. Do you agree with that? It could ramp up the military action. Yeah. Well, Israel has demonstrated once again this is now the sixth ceasefire that Israel accepted. Humanitarian ceasefires, Egyptian ceasefires, even the Hamas's own ceasefire, which they violated. Now this is the sixth ceasefire, and the the onus being placed on Israel repeatedly by the international media, in particular, and some in the international community. By the way, not in the Arab world, where the onus is being placed largely on the uh, on Hamas, and where you see editorials even in some papers, uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, elsewhere, or, or UAE, uh, coming out against Hamas and uh, implicitly supporting Israel. The uh, it, Even in most Muslim countries, you don't see support uh, for Hamas, and yet you see it in the European media, and even in the American, uh, much of the American media, let alone UNRWA and its... Uh, and its um, sister organizations in the United Nations. And specifically, if, uh, if if this is, I mean, if this is in fact the truth, and it seems it is that an Israeli soldier has been kidnapped, can that isolated episode in and of itself increase things like crazy? Yes, and the, it has. There's a very widespread search going on for the soldier right now, and the um, uh, Israeli army is obviously always committed to bringing home everyone. So this alone will will be an escalation for uh, for for what, what what's happening on the ground right now. And we know this happened in southern Gaza. For those of us who are unfamiliar, is, is there much different between the different regions of Gaza when it comes to trying to destroy the tunnels and kill the terrorism infrastructure, or is it really just you know a, a is it a duplicitous uh, uh, a type of operation just in many different parts of the strip? Well, uh, duplicitous in the sense, you mean that it's it's the same everywhere. Yeah, basically you've right. got, uh, you uh, know. So the answer is not the same everywhere. The, the depth of the tunnel infrastructure, not only how deep it is, but the, the intensity of it varies from place to place. The uh, element of surprise isn't there because Israel leaflets and Israel warns and Israel gives them advance notice to civilians to get out of uh of areas where Hamas is firing from, and, and I think more and more people understand that uh, the tunnels start in mosques, they start in people's homes, and I know there are a lot of people who ask the question, so we might as well preempt it, what's going through people's minds, why didn't they know, why didn't they see? 
You know, they begin in a, underneath a bathroom sink. That's the opening into the tunnel. And to discover these, and many of them have multiple ownings, openings. The, the terrorists who got through this week uh, came through a tunnel that had already been discovered by Israel, but they didn't get all of the branches of it, you know, leading into various parts of Israel. So near the Gaza border, within a mile or so of the Gaza border, you have those that lead into Israel. Then you have all the infrastructure under Gaza, which Israel's not even touching, where you have all of this network of uh, underground facilities. And I, it's not just tunnels. They're facilities in a sense that you have, have rocket launchers, you have manufacturing capacity, storage, weapons, uh, depots, uh, underground. And that can be anywhere, north, south. And that can be virtually anywhere. And, and also, people don't know that, that a lot of the damage that's being done is being done by uh, Hamas's own rac- uh, rockets. Uh, uh, I saw a statement on, on Wednesday, I think, that 140 rockets were fired at Israel. Fifty of them fell inside Gaza. Hmm. And uh, that's about, and about 10% overall of, their, of the rockets fired by Hamas misfired land in Gaza, including one of the M-75 rockets with a 100-kilogram warhead, exploded and killed at least seven Palestinians. We saw the attack on the Shifa hospital by one of their, and the Shanti refugee camp by missiles that they misfired. And nobody takes that into account. You don't hear U.N. officials and UNRWA officials citing it. And, and the, the facilities that were built within U.N. facilities, you know, three of the IDF soldiers killed this week was because an UNRWA clinic was booby-trapped, and the, uh, they had sent in explosive sniffing dogs and a small robot to, uh, to minimize damage to the structure, but explosives that were rigged to the building itself detonated, and topping, uh, toppling part of the uh, building on top of the soldiers, and another 15 uh, were injured. And this is a part of the story that, that people don't know, and, and it's so intensive that... Um, they, uh, there are, in, in one of the sweeps of a single street of 28 buildings, 19 were found to be booby-trapped. Yeah. And this is what we said last week, that the enemy is a lot different than it used to be. You know, very clever, and the booby-trapping is one of the main reasons for that. And, and some of the world sees it. The Canadian government is very clear and uh, said no one likes to see the suffering, but it's the terrorists. Hamas that has responsible and all their sister groups there. They initiate it. They continue it. And I don't understand why the rest of the world can't see with the same uh, moral clarity. Thank God at least you see the statements by Hegel, by others, continuing that this has, there has to be a disarmament of Hamas as part of any uh, uh, ceasefire. And by the way, you mentioned numbers before. I think I saw yesterday since July 9th, we're now at 3,000 rockets into Israel, which is only three weeks. I think, it's, I think it was 3,000 since the 9th of July. And you just mentioned uh, uh, people making statements, uh, coming out and, uh, and understanding the situation. I've got to ask you this. Most people who spoke to me this week wanted me to lead with this question. What do you know about this uh, conversation and transcript between the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Israel? Uh, it keeps getting denied in terms of its authenticity, and then something comes up which makes you want to actually believe that that transcript is authentic. The transcript is not authentic. It doesn't mean that some of those things may not have been said in the course of the conversation, of the overall conversation, but the transcript itself by both sides' admission is not 
authentic. There was a there was a comment that the president of the United States got a little hot under the collar during that conversation that there were actual threats being levied from Washington to the prime minister. Is that true? I, I wasn't on the phone call, so I can't comment. Well, you said that some aspects of this transcript or this ele- my assessment is that somebody that some of the things. Uh, were probably said. I don't know if the exact words were used, but some of the messages alluded to were probably said because we've heard it from other people in the administration. So do you think that that phone conversation was a lot different than ones that that took place two or three weeks ago and that the United States is really, and the President of the United States is losing patience with Israel in this situation? Well, just look at his public statements. They indicate that he has called for immediate ceasefires. He's called for other immediate action. At the same time, they are uh, the government of Israel has asked for the ceasefire, and that was Kerry's response this week, which was not wrong. And they said that that uh, they thought they were uh, what they were doing was consistent with what Israel uh, had asked for, which was an unconditional uh, ceasefire, which would allow at the same time Israel to continue to go into the tunnels, which this ceasefire allowed. You know, they were going after the, still dismantling the tunnels during the ceasefire as part of the agreement. And I think that there may have been some misunderstandings this week. It's certainly uh, uh, very unfortunate, if in, especially in a time of war, but a time like this, that there be perceived to be at least the, the, the big separation between the United States and Israel. I don't think it's as big as some people try to make it or wanted to make it. I do think that there are always going to be tensions because they have different agendas, to any two countries have differing agendas, but the support for Israel and for Israel to do what it has to do to defend itself has been sustained completely, and we have not seen uh, punishment uh, with withholding things that we know of. Yesterday, the uh, additional funding for Iron Dome was not forthcoming, but it wasn't because uh, of it was because of, of it being tied to other bills and not because of lack of support. And when they come back in September, I have no doubt that it will be passed. But, you know, Israel also, Israel issues get caught up in the normal politics of uh, between Republicans and Democrats. Right, I understand that. Is it? We discussed this a little bit yesterday. Is it realistic to have a ceasefire when Israel continues to pursue the tunnel infrastructure? Is that is that possible and, and realistic to expect from the enemy that as Israel continues its pursuit of the tunnels and destroying them, that there could actually be peace, that the rockets could stop being shot? Well, destroying the tunnels doesn't mean that anybody has to be hurt. It doesn't mean that Israel goes into additional territory. Israel maintains that corridor within the borders uh, of Gaza, and the United States said that recognized and others that it needs to continue to take defensive measures. This is not an offensive act to destroy a tunnel that comes under the border into your territory. And I think most of the world on that score is not so bad with Israel. With what, what Israel needs to do, they are, uh, I mean, obviously they're never going to be a chorus for Israel's security, right. but the, the idea that tunnels, I think, shocks people and, and people understand why Israel uh, needs to do it. You know, and, and many of them were found to be uh, inside mosques and other places. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I think on that count, uh, there hasn't been a problem. There, I do think that there were, there were unfortunate exchanges and misunderstandings with last weekend between the Secretary of State, the pictures, the optics of him with the foreign minister of Qatar and of Turkey. 
I think are very unfortunate when you when you see the reaction not in Israel, I'm talking about in Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states and many other places where, uh, including the PA, came out very strongly against it. Uh, so he managed to unite everybody. Uh, but they, the two parties that are closely associated with Hamas, and you saw again statements by Erdogan's guys talking about Hitler, talking about you know Israel in the most uh, terrible ways and depicting what Israel is doing in, in horrific ways, and people feel that you should not be giving legitimacy to Turkey or to Qatar, which has been the major funder of Hamas uh, till now. So I hope that issue, and you saw that the, the Prime Minister came out and said that the, the um, mockery of, of, uh, of Kerry uh, last weekend was uh, unwarranted and unfortunate. Uh, this is not a time when we should have a breach between the two. America has to be standing with Israel, has to make clear what the issues are. There's never been a clearer moral clarity, I think, in a war than in this one. We have to make the case, all of us, people who listen have to call and when the media keeps distorting and misrepresenting. I haven't seen one time a report saying how many kids died in, in uh, Gaza building the terror tunnels. At least 167, they say, were killed just in the construction of, the, of these tunnels. I don't see them reacting when these horrific... Uh, acts of incitement and the words of incitement are, are mouthed, whether it comes from Rouhani, who, who talked about the festering Zionist tumor again this week, and the, uh, the nature of the violation of human rights and civil rights and the war crimes being committed by Hamas. They fired, as you noted, almost 3,000. It's about, uh, well, after last night, it's probably over 2,900 uh, uh, mortars, and Israel has hit about 4,000 targets which shows you how far the Hamas infrastructure goes. It's not because Israel is wantonly hitting places. They're firing, at, and they're going after declared sites, sites in which have been fired, sites where, we know, where they know that there are uh, weapons and where weapons have been fired from. And I think that there, you know, the, the confusion that has reigned in this, despite the live coverage of the presence of reporters, the ability through all of the new media to cover events, and yet... They still are somehow able to manipulate, and it's not because Israel's PR is bad. Israel's PR has been good. They have put out information regularly. They have made things of people available. Their spokespeople are as good as we've ever had. It's because you're facing a hostile media that is prepared to distort and misrepresent. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmam.org. Malcolm Honline is with us, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Next Friday, uh, we are broadcasting from Stay Road. We'll reconvene with a weekly update, please God, two weeks from today. Uh, you said a lot in there. Let me go back for a second to, uh, uh, to the Secretary of State. Is it any more complicated than he simply wanted Qatar and Turkey to be the, I don't know, co-sponsors of this truce? I mean, it, it seems so absurd. You would think that America would choose partners who have a little bit more affinity toward Israel and who Israel you know, can live with a little more than those two? Well, I think his the thinking was that these are the two countries that have influence with Hamas, and if you want Hamas, to come to the table, or at least to agree to a ceasefire, uh, which, again, Israel wanted right. as well. Um, he needed them to bring they, them to the they table. He needed the, the people who had some leverage. 
Whether they ever exercise that leverage, we don't know. And we don't know what, I mean, their record till now has been quite the opposite of, right. of uh, being those who, who, who advance. Well, how, do you, how do you react when you hear that IDF uniforms and ball bearings are in humanitarian aid shipments from Turkey to Gaza? And, <laughs> and the most recent ones that were just uh, uh, marbles that were, were found in them, which are used by them in, in, in the uh, missiles. And that's, again, a point which, you know, you don't see the media telling what is in these missiles you know why people have to wait after the siren because the they're packed with ball bearings and shrapnel and that stuff can circulate for a couple minutes after a bomb after a missile hits so they have to wait until all that stuff is uh is settled right so or, or hit on the you know hit in the air and it rains down right so those who are sending those to gaza are the ones standing with the united states trying to negotiate a truce right. Our hope is that very little is going to get through to Gaza, but but this was humanitarian shipments. Yeah, understood. And on the media side of things, uh, which you were discussing, so when so when the when a rally in New York City, which you know proudly and shamefully, you know, there's always a double sword, a double edged sword, um, gets ten thousand people to come to New York City. I, I frankly was very proud of the thousands who came out. I was very disappointed by the thousands who didn't. But whatever. Um, and there's no media coverage, or relatively no media coverage. So the reason is because we have uh, bad PR departments at the top of uh, uh, the Jewish leadership, or we're simply being ignored by the media when it comes to rallying for Israel? It's, you know, the media wants man-bites-dog stories. When Jews come out in support of Israel... Without arrest, and without arrest, and without violence, and without burning yeah, flags, so and without demonstrations... Why, why do they go, love to cover the stories of Hamas and not look at the Israeli victims? Why don't they... How many stories have you seen about what it's like, for what, what the cost for Israel has been of this war? How many billions and billions of dollars? Because there's no, there has been limited loss of life of civilians now, we've lost... Unfortunately, about 62 people altogether, most of them uh, soldiers. Right. Think of all those families yeah. which do, who do not get coverage, but th- there's no blood and gore. They want to see missiles not being taken out in the sky, which was very interesting to their state, so that became an exciting thing, but the people got tired of it. But they can show blood and gore and tell these horror tales and exaggerate them. If you listen to NPR and others, how they can spend 10 minutes on a particular incident and you don't get the real context. You don't get the real facts about um, about what happened. So when you rally in New York without flag burnings and without arrests and without you know uh, civil disobedience and everything else, that nobody pays attention. Well, I mean, I'm sure there was some attention, but we did in Washington the, the National Assembly leadership assembly. We got a lot of coverage, but mostly when somebody interrupted, young one young <laughs> guy, one guy can interrupt uh, Susan Rice for maybe 30 seconds, and that of course got. Uh, covered, but her speech was very important, and because it addressed the controversy, so got a lot of coverage. I don't know what what it would have been before, and you know, and it applies to everything. When when somebody is critical, when a, a foreign leader says something about Israel, you see the coverage. When the Danish prime minister refuses to sign the letter by the Nordic states, when the president of Paraguay refuses to sign, when the prime minister of Canada stands up and speaks, they don't get coverage. They don't get whoever supports Israel, and there's a lot more support. Then, you know, when, when the Hispanic community comes out in support of Israel, it gets no notice. When a group of Hispanic artists or, or actors says something against Israel, that gets coverage. That's right. And, you know, people say, why isn't the PR better? It's not because the PR isn't good. Believe me, if they knew one-tenth of what is being done and how much is being done around the clock uh, in creative ways, whether it's in the new media, the old media, every media, and... Uh, 
and and you know Israel's portrayed as as being locked into a situation. It's not locked in. It's doing what it what has to do, and it's doing what it should do, and the, the and it has to take the time until they complete it. By the way, do you want to join me in expressing disappointment that uh, there were not more thousands of people there in New York City on Monday? Uh, first of all, uh, we have to remember there were amazing events everywhere in the country, hundreds and hundreds of events. And in, and in the New York area, dozens, maybe more, rallies and other things. So people you know, felt that they've attended things. Uh, this was done in short notice, but uh, I think having 10,000 people in August when you know schools are closed, colleges are closed, other things uh, where normally people who have more, are more readily available, uh, and I'm not sure if it was 10,000 or 15,000, it should have been more, but I think that it's a, it was a very respectable showing. But frankly, if they had tripled the number, the media coverage would not have been different. For 100,000, it might have been different. For 100,000, you, you're right. They might have been a difference, but uh, we'll see when that uh, the time will come. But I think that the... You know, the effectiveness of, of the, the demonstrations, uh, I know why people need it. I know why I need it and why we did this assembly, which uh, brought all the leadership of Congress together, brought others, and we made this real strong show uh, of unity. At the same time, we're trying to deal with the facts. We're trying to counter all of these, these mistaken images. We're going after the companies that are being threatened by a boycott, which should be remembered. And by the way, this time, and I know this is an issue you and I have discussed many times, the Haredi community in, in New York has responded, I think, more, and there have been more uh, Tefillah gatherings, Tehillim gatherings, and you saw that the spokesman for, for Gare in, in Israel said, when the country needs to be defended, then it is not appropriate for yeshiva students to go on holiday, and they cancel the vacations. For the yeshiva guys. Yeah, there are four Hasidic groups that said they'll remain open during Ben Azmanim, and now we're waiting for a decision to see if the uh, other mainstream yeshivas in Israel are going to follow suit. And frankly, I think the yeshivas here as well should consider that. But yeah, accentuate the positive. It was amazing to see that report, and we uh, and we uh, thank those who uh, implement their own strategy. You've, you and I have discussed many times, every strategy is important. If you believe in the strategy, which we do, that Torah study is key to our victory and to the future of the Jewish people, then yes, this is certainly the appropriate move. And when and when people see something, you know, the, the, the reports now that the White House ascribe responsibility for the UNRWA bombing to Israel, when they see something that's wrong, find ways, write to White House, let them know what you think, Call talk shows, write letters to editors, support, you know, the get hold of your member of Congress. Let's hear the statements. I mean, there have been many resolutions introduced this week, uh, at least four. One on the SPA, which is the Strategic Partnership Act, which makes Israel uh, special, puts it in a special category, which has all sorts of benefits. You have the money for Iron Dome funding, which will not get through, as you know, the Senate went on vacation late last night, the, the recess until September. But you're, I mean, you, you, and between now and November, Congress, I think, is in session all of 12 days. You seem to indicate, though, in September it will pass. I, I, oh, yes. I mean, the support is there. The numbers So the reason I say it like that is because on social media there's some people panicking that everyone's got to, you know, call their senator and, 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 you know, and beg to make sure that the funding comes through. It, it's not as desperate a situation as some people are describing. But they should hear. And now members of Congress are home. And, and my point is that they should visit them or invite them to synagogues, communities, and ask them for their analysis of what's going on, ask if they're going to visit Israel. There are people working on it. I know Elliot Engel, others, 
who have been amazing in all of this, uh, Peter King uh, f- uh, from the New York area, uh, most of people, Steve Israel is leading a group, um, Chuck Schumer, others have been really remarkable. Gillibrand introduced a resolution with Ted Cruz against Hamas uh, earlier this week. Uh, so people have been doing it. doesn't all get a lot of coverage, but there's been a, a lot of activity. And the uh, But we have to press them to see who, who is doing and who isn't doing and making sure that in September all these things will be resolved. Israel is, has been allowed to take weapons from the prepositioned arms in Sinai. And the best line I heard was when some reporter was questioning, uh, I think somebody from the Defense Department, and they said, well, the stuff is getting old anyway. We would have to replace it, whatever. But, but the fact is, and that's when people who say, why don't you go all out on Israel? Why don't you destroy the administration? Why don't you declare everybody anti-Semitic? Because the United States-Israel relationship is so fundamentally important for Israel's security, as it is for America's security, that you can't just go based on emotions. You've got to think through when, what you do, how you do it. That's why you see the prime minister reacting the way he does, and people sometimes mock. I think it's uh, for his domestic reasons. No, there are real practical reasons, and we have to use our brains, not just our yeah. hearts, our guts, to determine what we do. And there are a lot of military experts in our community, Malcolm. There are a lot of generals. I, I must say I'm, I'm deeply impressed with how many West Point graduates we must have. <laughs> By the way, I have a new policy, which I think you'll appreciate. In our neighborhood, we have a bunch of parents whose uh, sons are in Gaza right now. And the policy is if, if a parent of a soldier is in the room, there is no discussion of, of the military policy. Because I can just imagine how they roll their eyes when they hear people like me making suggestions of what Israel should or should not do. <laughs> and, of course, it's their sons who are putting their lives on the line. You know? By the way, you raise such an important point. Last night, until very, very late, I was on the phone with families who have kids in, in Gaza today. And people forget how many... Americans who have gone on Aliyah are being called up. I spoke to somebody last night who has three sons in the army right now wow. in different places, but two, two, one near Gaza, one in Gaza. And, you know, we should reach out to them. People should understand what they're going through, the anxiety of what, what this means, and to be supportive. We have to be supportive of our troops, although there are a lot of campaigns that are not legitimate, uh, you know, raising money for yarmulkes and it's this, you know, Iron Dome yarmulkes are a good idea, but anything short of that, the ID, friends of the IDF is, is carrying the, the army was much better prepared. They had vests for everybody going in. Uh, that doesn't mean that every campaign is not legitimate. You know that, that yesterday I saw a statistic that the Israelis provided 30,000 meals a day for soldiers in Gaza. We, we don't even realize that they can go to a war that you drive to. And I know my friend, uh, Mati Fried at the Beaker Bezos Holim, they go down every day with food, Hasidic guys, and bring stuff to the soldiers. Wow. And it's very meaningful to them uh, because it supplements what they get or they don't get, and, and uh, not because the army wasn't prepared or they don't have everything they need. Thank God this time they do. Unbelievable. couple of other things. When we hear about 16,000 more reservists being called up, and I think this was uh, just before the ceasefire that never happened. Um, I mean, should we, on the surface, assume that Israel is ready to, you know, increase the intensity in Gaza, or a big call-up is not always uh, does not always translate into that? It could just be a precaution or some type of strategic planning in case of some type of turn uh, in this whole episode. 
Well, I think all of those things uh, are factors. Also, you need to give relief to guys who have, some of them have been a month in, in mm, Gaza. Good point. Weeks, uh, and more. So you need to give get them relief. So bringing up people is important. I think one of the things they should do is not keep them so near the border because they become easier targets uh, there. But um, uh, So that's one. Two, I think it is preparation that people have to be ready because they are talking about expanding uh, the action inside Gaza, because what they're finding is that these tunnels and, and the launchers and other things extend throughout Gaza. And if they're really going to put an end to the attacks, it's not going to come because Hamas is going to voluntarily dismantle them. We know that. You see it. You see it in the constant violations, even of their own ceasefires. So Israel may feel the need to be able to go into a broader area. People ask questions. Why didn't they be, why weren't they more aggressive in the first days? Why weren't they, you know what? Those are all things that we can analyze later on. Right. I'm not a general. I don't know. I don't think I know better than they do. I, I, they know all of the things that that we suggest um, as well. But I, I mean, I wish the stories of really what's going on. You know that Hamas steals the the UN food coupons so that they don't get distributed to the people, but they give it to their own people, to their soldiers and others, because they do not have the funding. They are not doing well. And, um, you know, we, we saw the story this week how al-Qaeda is, is, is being funded because of the ransoms they collect each year. I think $66 million last year alone paid to them, which they use then for the terrorist activities. And they're kidnapping people. And, and how many of these stories have you seen? How many times do this, does the media report on it, yep. assuming after a guy is released? By the way, the identification of the uh, soldier has been released. Hadar Golden, 2nd Lieutenant Hadar Golden, 23 years old, from Kfar Saba, has been named as the IDF soldier presumed to be abducted by Hamas. We pray for him. 23 years old, Malcolm, and he is the latest kidnapping victim, and who knows where this is going to go now. I, I don't know how anybody can look at the pictures of these young guys who've been killed the soldiers and because they're soldiers somehow it's supposed to be nuded of its the sentiment and the you know okay the soldiers that's what they're supposed to die and media you see how constantly the, the leftist oriented media others say uh, 23 soldiers 60 uh, soldiers and thousands of civilians children other things how about all the children in israel who have been affected where do you see stories about telling how many of them live underground for all of this time all the communities near Gaza, let alone even into Tel Aviv and elsewhere, and everybody who's been there, and you will see it next week when you're there again. And and again, I urge people, visit Israel. It's so important. Every comes back, says they come back on such a high, they see how important it was, how they made a contribution by going. Just wander around, let alone visit the, kids, the soldiers in the hospitals or the families and and. There's so much good you can do with it. Every family and business in Israel is in turmoil somehow, whether it's uh, the, the call-ups, the reserves, people in the army, uh, business having to stop. Uh, and, it, and, it, uh, there are businesses not coming. People in the tourism industry. And all these things which can only be countered by our being assertive. And when we read about a company, and we are going to put out information soon, it's, we're, we're finished, companies that we have to support who stood by Israel despite the campaigns. But I can tell you, that boards of at least one or two major companies, major companies, are reevaluating their relationship because of some of these activities. And some of them, including the picketing at our office and elsewhere, are done by misguided, at best misguided, Jews, young Jews, who don't have a clue what they're saying and what they're, what they're arguing, what they're protesting, but 
but make headlines and make news. Oh, no question about it. Um, finally, Europe. It, you have to, with everything going on, and we see that almost every, so many countries, I should say, in Europe have some type of, the Jewish community, each of those countries have some type of situation going on at the moment. Uh, you did see that there were thousands who took to the streets in Europe in pro-Israel rallies at the end of this week. Uh, it took some courage for people to get out to the streets in Europe and do that. Yes, especially because they have very violent anti-Israel protests, and when they spot is pro-Israel protests, they harass people, and the police have to do a better job. Um, obviously, France has been uh, primary in it, but it's, uh, it's true in the Scandinavian countries. It's true in others. Uh, again, that's why I cited the Danish prime minister's refusal to sign uh, uh, a letter that from the Nordic Social Democratic leaders condemning Israel's attacks, etc. So you had uh, party leaders in Norway, Sweden, Finland, Iceland uh, signed this, where they condemn Israel's use of disproportionate force. I mean, this is one of the big jokes of this war, uh, not funny jokes, but uh, how the word disproportionate has taken on a whole new significance when, when the proportionality had nothing to do with the number of victims. It had to do about the significance of the amount of force used and the significance of a site that's selected. Now, these sites we know are significant, every one of them, and every one of them is, uh, is important in terms of the carrying out of terror. And, and but you don't see any of them doing resolutions saying uh, yesterday in in uh, in Israel 158 tr- trucks were scheduled to cross but they couldn't because of the security situation. But uh, 20 truckloads, 30 truckloads of food with 621 tons of food, 80 tons of agricultural supplies and additional trucks, seven trucks carrying 44 tons of medicine and medical supplies. Four trucks carrying 25 tons of humanitarian supplies. One day. One day. How many times have you read it, despite the fact they're firing, and including last night, they fired on some of the crossings which are open in order to benefit them. How many, and they are preventing people from coming for uh, Palestinians who come from Gaza quietly every week for treatment in Israel. Now Hamas is preventing them, and then they're going to blame Israel and say Israel isn't. What other country set up a field hospital at its enemy's crossing to treat their people. And this, these stories get no attention. Oh, that's for sure. Uh, is there a particular country in Europe um, that you could point to right now, unlike France, which we've seen a deterioration, and you know we've been talking about it for months and years, where you would have said to yourself, I don't know, a few weeks ago, that you would go visit and be openly Jewish, so to speak, but today you'd consider... Not, not, I don't want to talk about your courageous. I'm saying in general, where where Jews would be, you know, relatively uncomfortable in that type of situation. Is there any country in Europe where it has switched dramatically in a short period of time? It, you mean deteriorated dramatically? Yeah, like you know, really quickly. Where a few weeks ago you would have told the Jewish group, "Go enjoy; it's the greatest place to go tour," and now you would hesitate to, you know, to even suggest that they that they take a trip there. Uh, I would hesitate many places. Uh, people tell me Italy is relatively safe. My own kids were there, but I do not suggest that you go anywhere in Europe with the Yarmulke on because you never know, and and there are incidents everywhere and often. Uh, France certainly, Great Britain has had a lot in London, but we've had them in L.A., in Chicago, in Boston, here in New York uh, as well. So we don't have to turn to Europe for this. So we don't have to just go to Europe, and and uh, I think in Canada as well we've had incidents. Uh, so I can't tell you right now of a country in Europe that I would say um, 
where it's safe in Berlin, they tell you not to wear anything visibly Jewish, even though the government has been really supportive. And by the way, the government of France, under Valls, whose wife is Jewish and, and has been very outspoken, and I spoke to the head of the French Jewish community, I speak to them regularly, uh, told me that the government has been supportive and has been uh, uh, working on it. But, you know, you're dealing with demographic realities of the number of people, which I spoke about here with you 10 years ago, and we kept warning, and much to the chagrin of the people in Europe, and I kept saying, you got to wake up, you got to look at the realities. There's no way, it's not a question just of who it is, it's a question of the numbers. The demographic imbalances, the fact of the of the 75% of Muslims being under 25, the birth rate being double that of Europeans, etc. Those were all realities, and now we're seeing the, the price and the radicalization that's taking place, let alone the return of the thousands who have started, some of whom have started to come back, as we saw in, in the attack in Brussels, who are trained in Syria, yeah. and who have been fighting, and who are killers. <sighs> The handwriting's on the wall, and like you just said, you don't have to turn to Europe to see it. Hopefully everybody will open up their eyes and realize the future of the Jewish peoples in the state of Israel, no matter what the situation is there. That is true, but we have to recognize in America the law enforcement, uh, the yep. governments are supportive and fight anti-Semitism and do not want to tolerate this. There are times when they flirt with it. There have been incidents where we were disappointed with the reaction and responses. Right, you're a hundred large. You, right. you got to acknowledge it. You're a hundred percent right, and the Hakara Satov, the appreciation is there. You also know of many instances in history, including modern Jewish history, where things changed very quickly. Very quickly, and uh, again, you have to look at demographic realities wherever people are and the political trends. We see uh, on the left uh, uh, great diminution. Uh, relative to the right of support, uh, where you might get 70-plus percent on the right, uh, or more conservative side, I should say, leaning down towards uh, the left when you get even numbers or sometimes even worse. But by and large, American people remain remarkably supportive of Israel. Our elected officials, the members of Congress, have been amazing. That's why you got to thank them. you got to encourage them. you got to those who haven't done enough, be held to account. Ask them what did they vote for, what did they support, and what did they introduce? What what measures have they taken that beyond just uh, voting the right way? And the, the you will be surprised sometimes by the response. Well, Malcolm, thank you so much. We'll speak in two weeks. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Have a good Shabbos. And people can be positive and it's, and and remember that we will get over this too. <laughs> That's true. That we know. That we know if we look at our at our background in history. Friday morning, JM in the AM, 27 minutes after 8 o'clock. My thanks to Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Next Friday in Stay Road, two weeks from today, we'll reconvene with a weekly update and discuss the news of the week in depth. Someone has posted, and I, I hope this is accurate because... Uh, that the name of the uh, uh, the, the Hebrew name for uh, prayers for Hadar Golden, uh, second uh, lieutenant Hadar Golden, is uh, Hadar Ben Chedvalea. Hadar Ben Chedvalea, and um, and of course we pray for him, and uh, we hope that he's returned uh, safely to Israel very soon. I'm sure his um, IDF brethren are searching for him as we speak with great intensity. Candlelighting 751 on this Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon. Monday night and Tuesday is Tishabov. This time each and every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure we present Rabbi Benjamin Yudin.
spiritual leader of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin. Good morning, Achum. Good day of Shabbos, everybody. For you, it's good morning. For me, it is almost afternoon in Beit Shemesh. And this week, we have the privilege of reading Parshas Devarim. We begin the fifth book of the Torah. It is called Shabbos Chazon because of the special half Torah that we read, whereby the Navi Yeshayahu points out, unfortunately, the breakdown of both man to God and man to man that took place at the time of the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. I always tell you that Eretz Yisrael is special. It's special because you can feel the air of Shabbos and you can feel the air of Shabbos today. However, there is unfortunately the cloud which is um, above the country that there is this uh, incredible you know, awareness that we are uh, unfortunately at war. In fact, I just want to begin by saying that it's not just talk. What does that mean? Elif Lamate, Elif Lamate, which by the way is the name of the organization that you can find out the name of a chayal, that you can pray for him. And the name is so appropriate because as we read two weeks ago in Parshas Matos, that when they went to war, there were a thousand soldiers fighting and a thousand soldiers just praying and studying Torah. And therefore, we believe that we need both. And therefore, the major yeshivos, Panovich and Mir, and so many, many more yeshivos have canceled their Bein Hazmanim and are not giving the boys off as they usually do after Tisha B'Av until Rosh Chodesh Elo. But as long as this Matzav is going on, as long as there are soldiers fighting in Aza, there are yeshiva students studying Torah all the time. We are an incredibly one united people. Tisha B'Av coming this Monday night and Tuesday. I would like to just review. I'll try to do this as quickly as I can so I can share one or two uh, thoughts with you regarding uh, the Hashkafa that I see it coming out um, of this special time. Just as a reminder to you, this Shabbos, we are not restricted with meat or wine, just that the Havdalah should ideally be drunk by a child. If not, an adult can drink the wine. One should not wear new clothes this Shabbos, Shabbos Chazon. This Monday afternoon for Mincha, we do not say Tachanun. We are such a special people. Kora Olai Moe, Tishabav will be a holiday. I can promise you that. So said the Navi, and therefore we already in certain ways treat it that way. We don't say Tachanun on Monday afternoon, nor all day Tuesday. On Monday afternoon, besides one supper, and you should drink a lot, everybody, on Monday, water especially, so we have a suda mafsekis, a meal before the fast, and you know that many have the practice of davening, eating supper, davening mincha, after mincha, having this suda mafsekis, which consists our practice of, of a hard-boiled egg, cold if possible, a slice of bread, and uh, water, that's it, and we dip the bread in ash, and we say, 
Zehu Sudas Tishabav. This is literally the meal of Tishabav. The practice is that men don't eat this together so that it would not be an obligation for Zimun. You eat the um, Sudam Avsekis sitting low. You can wear shoes while you eat the Sudam Avsekis. Because um, you don't have to take your shoes off until after sunset. And truthfully, the fast begins at sunset, unless you specifically say that you're accepting the fast with this meal, that is, with the conclusion of the meal, or you thought that. Five tragedies occurred on Tisha B'Av. It was decreed upon the generation of the desert that they would not enter Eretz Yisrael. Both the first and second Beis Migdash were destroyed. The town, the city of Beitar, and thousands of People were killed on Tisha B'Av, and Tunisrufus of Russia plowed over the place of the Beis Migdosh on Tisha B'Av. Just like Yom Kippur has five restrictions, so too are there the five afflictions and restrictions of Tisha B'Av. We don't eat or drink, that's one. We don't bathe and wash ourselves, that's two. We don't anoint and put on it cosmetics, lotions, that's number three. Leather shoes are prohibited and sexual relations are prohibited on Tisha B'Av. All adults, healthy adults, are required to fast, including pregnant and nursing women. To them especially, I say drink a lot on Monday and no heroics. And if you have any questions, please consult your local Rav. Children from the letter of the law below Bar and Bas Mitzvah are not obligated to fast. They should be trained accordingly and use your good judgment regarding your children. On Tisha B'Av, we don't brush our teeth. We don't rinse with mouthwash. You can swallow medication without water. In the morning, you awaken. You wash with a cup, what is known as Negovasar, washing your hands alternating right, left, right, left, right, left, as we do every morning, this time only but to the knuckles. Take your fingers and rub them through your eyes to clean out what might have gathered during the night. Only washing for pleasure is prohibited. And therefore, you can wash to take care of a child, and you can wash to prepare food during the afternoon, whatever is necessary. And once again, cosmetics and body lotions are prohibited for pleasure. You can put on lotion for medication, and you can use deodorant. Marital relations are prohibited, and on the night of Erev Tisha B'Av, the practice is to uh, curtail one's pleasure in sleeping. If one usually sleeps with two pillows, please try with one. Now, the practice of Torah study, David HaMelech tells us, is Misam Chelev, makes us happy, and therefore the practice is that we don't study Torah on Tisha B'Av. We do say Birkas Torah on Tisha B'Av. You can study the book of Eov and parts of Yirmiyahu. You can study Eicha, and you can study the different Gemaras and Gitna and Sanhedrin, which talk about the Chorban that you can do. Um, Ideally, if one can avoid working the entire day of Tisha B'Av, that would be the best. But if not, one should try to postpone their working until after Chatzos, which is mid-the-day, and New York time, approximately 1 p.m. Interestingly, in the morning, we do not put on talis and tefillin. After Shacharis, we do say Kinos. Now, it has become more and more prevalent, which is wonderful, that many, many shuls explain the kinos. Today you have kinos translated into English and other languages if you need it, and it's important that you can understand them and um, 
that you should stay as long as you can, Tisha of morning in shul, preferably till chatzos, till about one o'clock. And many shuls in the afternoon have various videos uh, going, which is wonderful to give people an opportunity for inspiration during the day. Monday night during Eicha, when we read Megillas Eicha, the lighting is reduced in many shuls, fulfilling that which we read in Eicha, B'machashakim Hoshivani. Interesting in Eretz Yisrael, where I find myself, many follow the minig of the Gra, and not only is Eicha read from a klaf, from parchment, but they even make the bracha of Al-Mikra Megillah. Most of you back in the States, will not uh, have a Megillah on parchment, and you will not have the bracha of al-Mikra Megillah prior to Eicha. Um, finally, on because the Beis HaMikdash continued burning on Monday, on Tuesday night into Wednesday, which is uh, from the 9th in the afternoon into the 10th. So meat and uh, wine are not eaten until midday on Wednesday, and the washing of clothes as well is not eaten until, not, is not done until midday on Wednesday. I want to just share with you, if I may, some very important ideas. What was the Beis Hamikdash? Let's understand something: that the Beis Hamikdash, among other things, unified the Jewish nation. The korbanos, the primary korbanos, were national. Every day there was a korban tamid, the constant offering in the morning and the constant offering in the afternoon. Our prayers today correspond to these korbanos. There was one korban musaf that was brought every Shabbos. One korban musaf brought every Rosh Chodesh. One, there were korban musaf that were brought on every Yom Tov. But this was brought on behalf of the entire nation. And the Ramchal, in his Das Tevunos, teaches that even the Kohanim officiating in the Beis HaMikdash had to have the ability to have in mind the entire nation, because this was indeed a form of unifying. At the actual Korbanos, there were the Kohanim who were doing the Avoda. There were the Levim who were doing their singing and playing music. They were the Yisraelim through their Ma'amadam, which is their prayers. And so the Beis Hamikdash unified the Jewish nation. And not only that, at the Beis Hamikdash, we were able to see incredible Hashkacha Pratis. You'll take a look, which is divine providence. You'll take a look in the fifth chapter of Avos, and you'll be reminded of the ten miracles that occurred regularly in the Beis Hamikdash that one knew that they were in the presence of God. Now, I can only tell you that this year, Tisha B'Av, I know speaking here in Eretz Yisrael, is different in the sense that, oh my goodness, there is an incredible sense of unity in the land. As I began by saying, the yeshivas are going on. They are unified with the soldiers, one with a Gemara and one with a rifle. Unfortunately, they are both going full steam ahead because we realize we're in a very special time at this moment. I can only tell you that after speaking with 
Rachel Frankel, the mother of Naphtali, Hashem Yikom Damav. And, to, you know, sharing our sympathies from our community and congregation and giving her some monies to be used at the family's discretion, her immediate response was that we want to use the money some way to further the feeling of achtos that you have in the land. And Mr. Shar, the father of Gilad, Hashem Yikom Damo, who I spoke with, said that he hoped that maybe, maybe all these prayers which were given on behalf of the boys could help stem the tide of assimilation and intermarriage in the United States and throughout the world. Now, we have seen in Eretz Yisrael not just incredible unity, but such amazing Hashkocha Pratis. The Ashkocha Pratis is seen in so many ways. Ashkelon, the city that probably has received the greatest amount of rockets, and to date there have been over 2,000 rockets sent into Eretz Yisrael. So there was a day last week where there was a glitch in the Iron Dome, and for eight hours the Iron Dome was not working by Ashkelon. And yes, for those eight hours, not a single rocket came towards Ashkelon. I can only tell you that a soldier was shot a few nights ago. The bullet was intercepted by the hand grenade he was wearing, which, number one, miraculously did not explode, didn't damage him nor his fellow soldiers. I have to tell you of an incredible fact. And the fact is as follows. Listen carefully. This forthcoming year is a Shemitah year. And that presents all kinds of interesting halachic challenges. And so, people think in advance. Oh my goodness, we're going to need wheat for two years of uh, uh, two more Pesach. So watch this. You should know that the rainy season was not as strong this past year. So they were looking for wheat that was later in ripening and they looked all over the country and they found finally just listen carefully now two weeks ago in Kibbutz Tzofer which is right near Gaza 2000 Dunam where the wheat was still green and they cut down the field alright now listen carefully they were questioning themselves whether it was fair to bring in workers uh, to that field to um, cut the grain, cut the wheat, while rockets would, could be falling at any time. They realized that they were doing it l'shem mitzvah, for the purpose of a mitzvah, and they cleared off the field. Now listen carefully. Two days later, after they left the field completely empty, a group of terrorists came up from tunnels under the ground and they came up in the middle of the field. Had the wheat not been cut, they never would have been seen. They were killed as a result of the wheat for Shmura Matzah. The list goes on and on. We have seen and hear daily of Anisecha Shebuchoyomimanu, miracles that are happening completely all the time 
here in Eretz Yisrael in conjunction with this war in Gaza. So if the war is unifying and there is Hashkoch HaPratis, who needs the base Hamigdash? Now please don't hang up <coughs> on me. And the answer is, of course, we need the base Hamigdash. And the answer is obvious. Right now, and I hope I am so wrong, it hurts my mouth to say it. And it's going to hurt your ears to hear it. But Halavai, this war is going to end today. Is this feeling of Achdus going to continue? And we all want to say with a loud resounding yes. But human nature, unfortunately, in the deep recesses of our hearts, tells us very possibly differently. And therefore, I will tell you, why do we need a base Hamigdash? We need a base Hamigdash because it's going to change our nature. And I'm going to give it to you from a very interesting perspective. I was with a close Yedid Nefesh yesterday <coughs> a Rabbi Dani Stiskin the Rav of Ma'on who told me the following insight which I think is so remarkable and that is as follows if I were to ask you who was the wisest man that ever lived you're going to tell me it was King Shlomo and you're right now how many stories are found in Tanakh and you know the answer is one the famous story about the two women that come and say the baby's mine no the baby's mine and Shlomo Melech says no take the knife and and the other one says no don't kill my baby and Shlomo says that's the mother wonderful now this certainly shows his wisdom no question about it but that's it so I want to share a very interesting insight into this story tell me what did these mothers do What's the difference? I'm not a yenta. What do I need to know? So the Navi tells us they were zonos, they were prostitutes. Now why is that important? But forgive me. I don't know if this goes well with the profession of prostitution to have a baby. Now that they have a baby, to be concerned for the baby, to nurse the baby. To have... So listen carefully. What the deeper part of this story is that Shlomo HaMelech created an environment through the Beis Hamikdash, as we are told at the end of chapter 3 in Shira Shirim, Pasuk Yud, Tocho Rotsuf Ava, the foundation of the Beis Hamikdash was built on love. There was an additional, what we think we know what the word love means, we don't. In other words, the love that people had towards HaKadosh Baruch Hu through the Beis Hamidosh was then able to spill over to all the personal relationships that we have. A mother to our children, a spouse to their spouse. The love was of a greater one because they had experienced a greater degree of Ahava which came through the Beis Hamikdash. And therefore, just as the Talmud tells us that the taste of fruit diminished, the size of fruit diminished after the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, so too our interpersonal relationships have diminished. And therefore, while we pray with all our kavana that this special feeling of achdus, which exists in the land today, will continue after this war, the bisamigdash that we warn on, that we mourn this Tuesday, is certainly the guarantee 
that this will be the absolute ma'achid to B'nai Yisrael. Yes, it is our responsibility, each and every one of us, to try in their own way to maintain this very special feeling and to keep it going as much as possible. But one should never think that we don't need it. We have to remember, Ikar, Choser, Minas Sefer, the main aspect of our godliness is still missing. And it's for this reason that we sit down this Monday night and Tuesday, we sit low, that we mourn, and that we, as a people, join together. I just want to conclude, and it's Hashkacha Pratis. I meant to tell you that whereas in other years, I would say one should not recite Tehillim on Tisha B'Av, if this war is still going on, I think that the circumstance changes, and certainly that could and continue to be our focus, especially after Chatzos this coming Tuesday. I pray that this will be the last Tisha B'Av that we will have to mourn and fast and sit low that in Hashem the words of the Navi it really will be a day of happiness and joy for all of Klal Yisrael. Shabbat Shalom to all. JM in the AM, Friday morning broadcast here at 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmintheam.org. My thanks to Rabbi Yudin. Yes, yes, yes. May this be the uh, last Tish above, that's for sure. Uh, we pray not only for the uh, safety of our soldiers in Israel and for the residents of the state of Israel, but now we have an additional prayer. Now we have uh, something else to um, to uh, pray for, to say to Helen for, and that's of course the the news that we've learned of the uh, kidnapping. Of Hadar Golden, second lieutenant Hadar Golden, 23 years old of Kfar Saba, has been abducted by Hamas. His name is Hadar Ben Chedvalea. Hadar Ben Chedvalea. We pray for his immediate safe release. We pray for the soldiers of the Israel Defense Forces. We pray for the residents, our brothers and sisters in Israel. And I again, as we did just a little while ago on this program, we again commend and thank and recognize those yeshivot, those educational institutions who've insisted and continue to insist, rightfully so, that Torah study is such an important strategy in this war and in every activity of the Jewish people. Uh, and we commend those yeshivot that have announced that if the war continues past Tuesday, they will not be closing their yeshivot. They, are, they will not be encouraging their students to take time off. They'll be encouraging their students to remain in the yeshiva and keep the intensity of the Torah study 
at as high a level as possible. Kolakavod, many people have pointed out that there are so many from so different, so many different areas of Jewish life who are trying to do their best at this time. And yes, a lot of people are in fact doing their best. Candle lighting on this Erev Shabbos Chazon, Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim is 7.51. Tuesday is Tishabov, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall at 2 p.m. Charlie Harari on our network to wrap up the fast at 6.30 p.m. on Tishabov. Charlie Harari live with our friends from Project Inspire, 6.30 p.m. until the end of the fast on Tishabov Day. You can catch the whole thing at jmandtheam.org, nachomsegel.com. And you can participate in a very effective way to wrap up the 9th of Av. Um, we'll be in Israel next week, uh, to Thursday, with Yom NCSY, uh, the incredible gathering that takes place in Israel each summer. A dream come true for us to participate in it. Friday from Sterot. Uh, in fact, um, Yossi Baumel is going to join us here Monday in our studio at JM in the AM. Uh, we'll be with Nefesh Benefesh next Tuesday as the flight lands in Ben Gurion Airport. We are looking forward to that. Another special moment during this challenging summer of 2014. We're looking forward to showing some solidarity and traveling to Israel and being part of, uh, of life in Israel for a few days. Make sure to be tuned in a week from today from Stay Road. Two weeks from today, the weekly update will return with Malcolm Honline right here at JM in the AM. Congratulations to those who successfully cycled up to Camp Simcha. The bike for Chai raised over $4 million. An incredible, incredible accomplishment. Uh, I'm sure the finish line was spectacular. Congratulations to all those who um, participated and helped raise all that great money for High Lifeline. Time to say good Shabbos on this Erev Shabbos Chazon. Candle lighting at 7.51. This is JM in the AM. So throw 
Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listened to sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, and around the world in the web, jmnam.org. Let us hope for good news. Basuro Tovot. Matis uh, on the uh, stream on the network this coming Sunday, starting at 7 a.m. with JM Sunday. He has an amazing, comprehensive English news report every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. Make sure to be tuned in and to get the latest from Israel. Uh, Monday, Erev Tishabov, we're back starting at 6 a.m. Have a wonderful Shabbos, great weekend until Monday morning. Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.